Awesome. So we're live. So thank you for being here. Welcome to the Ace yeah, Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are the elk manager for the state of New Mexico, Game and Fish, correct? Yes. Okay, awesome. So uh, so yeah, just your full name and um, your background, what you do, um, and I'd love to know about how you got into it too. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Travis Zavarano. And as you mentioned, I'm the elk program manager for New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. Um, and so what that means is really I help coordinate a lot of the things that are elk related throughout the state, whether or not that's uh, facilitating research projects with local universities, um, setting harvest recommendations and har harvest dates. Um, every four years, we, we go through a, a rule setting cycle um, where we take a look at population levels, um, look at demographic rates, how those populations are doing, um, come up with estimates of how many we can uh, sustainably harvest <clears throat> during those hunting seasons. And then uh, every four years, we publish a, a harvest rule that establishes um, the hunt dates and how many licenses are, are allocated for each of those uh, herd units across the state. Um, and so a big part of my job is, is monitoring those, those populations, um, seeing how they're doing, and also um, helping out with various like habitat improvement projects. So bringing money into the state, um, either through nonprofit or federal funding, um, and using some of that funds to, to kind of go out and improve wildlife habitat where we uh, know that there's some issues, um, and just kind of help bolster those populations across the state um, to help sustain those populations into the future. So... Uh, yeah, pretty much everything elk related, uh, doesn't always come across my desk, but a lot of it does. And, uh, yeah, just here to support the populations and, uh, help the, the hunting population as well. Yeah. That, that's a big job. Yeah. 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 Are, are you a hunter? I am. Yeah. I grew up, uh, in Cody, Wyoming outside of Yellowstone. Uh, and those that are familiar with it, it is, uh, it, they'll understand that's why I get into the field that I did. I mean, we grew up hunting and fishing uh, in the Absorca Mountains and in the wilderness areas close to there. And um, so spent many, many years of my childhood, you know, camping out, fishing with my family and, and going on hunting ex expeditions even before I was old enough to, to carry my own rifle. So uh, so getting to harvest my, you know, my first big game was like a big uh, rite of passage. And, and, you know, our family was really big into hunting. So it was it was a natural step for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. You, uh, just like when I talked with Oren, same thing. He had a hunting background as well and grew up that way. Um, I feel um, envious of you guys, honestly, uh, just because I'm a late onset hunter. And that's kind of the reason for, you know, doing this podcast is just getting, trying to get as much information as I can from the experts, uh, if you will. I've gotten information from hunters, but sometimes that's great and then sometimes it's not <laughs> you know yeah um and so so yeah thanks for for doing this and thanks for your your uh your history i mean you have a you have a, it sounds like you have a, a a good history of hunting you know your hunting is out of wyoming did you hunt mostly elk or or deer or I, I obviously probably a combination of everything but were you focused on elk is that why you're in this position did you did this position that you have, were you gunning for this or did you just kind of fell into your lap? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question and probably just as interesting of an answer. Um, a little bit of both, to be honest. So when I was growing up, we hunted everything, everything that you could get a license for. Uh, you know, we would be hunting elk in the fall, uh, deer in the fall, pronghorn, um, 
and you know even as a little kid we'd go out and hunt rabbits just to you know to to learn the the firearm safety to learn the respect of the animal that you're hunting and stuff along that line you know to really just kind of prep yourself for the big the big events um so you know growing up hunting big game um you know really kind of put me along that track of of understanding what wildlife management uh entails and just kind of gaining a respect for uh, for the process itself and what game and fish agencies do uh, nationwide. Um, but then, you know, I, I went to undergraduate uh, at the University of Wyoming and got my bachelor's in wildlife management. Uh, and then I spent some time, about six years, just kind of bouncing around all over the West, um, just being a technician for various projects. So university research or um, various agencies that had various projects going on. Um, so just kind of spent some time, some time bouncing around, getting, gaining experience, learning about what I did and didn't want to do in my professional life. And then I returned to graduate school, uh, at the university of Wyoming and, um, and luckily, yeah, I landed a position where my research entailed looking at, um, working with the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, uh, establishing a network of trail cameras along uh, elk migration routes. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to, to decide whether or not we could use trail cameras to gather some of this demographic data for migratory elk herds. Um, so a lot of Western agencies, we fly helicopters um, once a year to get at, you know, what our cow-calf ratios look like to, to give us an idea about what reproduction um, capacity there is for these herds. Also, you know, how many bulls, how many mature bulls are in your population? Um, what kind of some of those age groups look like? Uh, this is all just information that is, is needed to be able to understand how that population is doing. And it goes into our population models. And so, um, like I said, many Western agencies fly these once a year, including our own. And in Wyoming, um, there was this really unique opportunity to look at whether or not we could get some of this information uh, through remote data collection using trail cameras. So my job was to look at um, deploying trail cameras along migratory pathways into and out of Yellowstone National Park. So there were five migratory herds that all summer up in Yellowstone National Park, um, and then they come out in the winter as the snow flies and, you know, the food is hard to access and the winter just gets too severe. And so we use GPS collars to figure out where these kind of migratory pathways were. And then I would put trail cameras out on, on, on the bottlenecks of those and use that information uh, to discern, okay, what do our cow calf ratios look like? What do the bull cow ratios look like? And then also looking at kind of the timing of migration uh, for those herds. Um, and then there was a second component of that. Uh, my second chapter was looking at uh, the strength of habitat selection for GPS collared elk uh, in a wildfire that occurred near Jackson Hole. Um, so kind of looking at how strongly elk were queuing into some of these burned habitats and whether or not the vegetation that was coming back um, had a higher kind of uh, digestible energy index, uh, how much crude protein, the the new newly emergent um, grasses and forbs and such that came in, uh, you know, was that basically a benefit to the elk in that population. And so those research questions uh, for my master's really did kind of, uh, kind of shoehorn me into this position. And I just lucked out that this position opened up, you know, soon after uh, I graduated my master's. So I'm happy to be here. No, that's cool. Sounds like you have a, a um, you're like the perfect person for it. Um, you should tell my boss that. <laughs> I mean, hopefully she feels that way already. But <laughs> that's good. Uh, I'm sure you're doing great because you guys have a 
uh, New Mexico. You've been in the position how long? Sorry. I started, uh, believe it or not, I started in March of 2020. So, oh, okay, okay. yeah, I was in this office for four days, uh, and they sent us all home on the Thursday of my first week, uh, to work from home because of the pandemic. So, oh, crazy. Yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty interesting and steep learning curve for me. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I'm sure you're up to the task. Um, I, I was just about to say, um, you're, you're doing a good job because New Mexico has a, um, a good reputation for, um, I mean, trophy animals anyway. I mean, that's what you hear in the in the hunting circles that if you want a big bull, you know, check out New Mexico. That's what I've heard. Like, oh, they have giants down there, you know. Um, and hey, you're 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 managing the elk, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to think I'd like to take a little bit of credit for that, but there's certainly a lot of you know genetic components and and environmental components that you sure. know I can't take credit for. But uh, sure. But you're a big part of it. I yeah, mean, you have to be. Yeah, there and there are certainly decisions that you know that we make at the management level to you know that we consider when we're looking at a herd, especially uh, if they are considered a, a, a quality hunt management area. Quality, yeah. yeah. I'm using that more than trophy for uh, just because of Oren. <laughs> He's yeah. like, uh, let's use let's use quality and not trophy. Um, that's a better, especially for people who don't hunt and that you know they or people who are kind of against hunting when they yeah. hear trophy. Well, and I think I think too there there is like a a clear distinction between trophy and quality. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times when people are talking about trophy hunts, um, there there are a lot of like private land um, kind of game ranches in some of the, especially in like Texas and stuff like that, where there's not a lot of public land to be hunted. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of folks that come to these uh, these game ranches and they're looking for the biggest the biggest buck or the biggest bull that they can find and they pay top dollar to to go out and and hunt those trophy animals yeah um, and i think you know as an agency we steer away from that for a couple different reasons like one we don't want to promote the idea that we're that we're only interested in in trying to get people out there to hunt you know these big trophy you know uh trophy animals and that's our goal is to like get get this guy get to get a 380 class bull up on his wall you know like mm. that's not our prime directive as wildlife management agencies mm-hmm. um, but we do have what we call quality hunt management zones where we design the structure of the hunts so the dates are a little bit closer to the rut we don't allow as many licenses to go into uh, some of those areas to release a little bit of that hunting pressure um, so you have a little bit higher of a chance of success there's there's less harvest pressure on the that segment of the population, uh, and the idea is to let some of those animals escape harvest and, and make it to that older age class. So there are older age class bulls in our quality hunt management zones, but we don't necessarily manage for trophies. So I mm. think that's I think that's kind of the distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, for the people who like myself who've heard or know that New Mexico is a state where you can, the, the chances are, are good or can be good uh, to harvest a, a big mature uh, trophy and or quality animal and put that 380 on your wall. Um, for those people, um, are, is the trophy, is the, is, is the main reason then because of the habitat here is it because of the hunting pressure? Um, is it a lot to do with management or some has to do with management too? You kind of want to be known, not necessarily as a state that has those quality and trophy animals like you're to, to your point, but 
Um, what, what, what would you attribute to the reason for that then? Like, why is it um, that, wow, New Mexico is known for that? Yeah, and, you know, just like with a lot of ecological things, there's there's a lot of factors that go into answering that question. Sure. Um, you know, and certainly there's there's a, a big habitat component. Um, we, we don't have the really harsh winters that a lot of northern Rocky uh, states do. Um and especially for bulls, uh, when they come out of what we call the rut or the breeding season, um, they're, they're really in kind of poor body shape. They don't spend a lot of time eating. You know, they'll, they'll decrease their, their foraging um, by up to like 40 or 50% of the time that they would normally be eating. Um, during that rut, rut cycle, they're, they're spending more time defending their harem, uh, you know, fighting off other bulls uh, and, and trying to mate, you know, with their harem itself. And so they're spending a lot of their energy doing that and not eating. So, and this is, this is true, you know, across all the Western states and, and anywhere that we have elk, uh, you know, Rocky Mountain elk here in the States that, you know, those bulls are going into winter, um, in somewhat poor body condition. And here in, you know, the arid Southwest, we don't really have this really hard, hard conditions, cold, you know, hard access to food, we don't have those really extreme winter conditions. And so you, you have a higher um, survival rate for uh, across the board. Um, but bulls can be susceptible to that. Um, one, because again, they're entering uh, winter in poorer body condition, but also, you know, uh, bulls and, and cows, they, they segregate um, during the winter time. Mostly the bulls are hanging out either by themselves or with other groups of bulls when they're not in the, in that breeding pattern. Mm. And so when they are off, you know, either by themselves or in small groups, they're, they're often more susceptible to predation as well. And, you know, in some of the Northern Rocky States, uh, such as Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, where they, you know, have a healthy wolf population, um, you know, that's another factor um, that, you know, that we don't, we don't have as strong of a predation pressure uh, in many of the areas where we do have uh, quality hunt management here. So, so you know, that in combination with, with really good habitat, um, you know, and we have a little bit of a different uh, precipitation regime here in uh, New Mexico, wherein typically we're pretty dry through uh, the spring months and, and coming into June and then either late June or early July was when we get our monsoons. Mm. And so you get this kind of second green up of, of all the grasses and forbs um, across the landscape and in, in this, their summer ranges. And it really helps to kind of like bolster, um, some of that late, um, some of that late body condition and being able to build up those, those fat reserves, uh, before they go into kind of the winter and the spring. And, and believe it or not, spring is usually the hardest time for elk in, in New Mexico because everything is just so dry. Um, and it's hard to find any quality forage. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a combination of things, just like a lot of, you know, ecological questions. And that's the fun part about being a biologist is like, you know, you don't show up to work every day thinking that you're going to be doing the same thing. Mm. You know, there's always new questions to, to investigate. There's always new avenues of, of thought about, you know, well, what's going on here or, um, uh, you know, what else can we, can we look at, um, that might be influencing this population, um, so it, it's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but there's, no, there's just a lot great. of things that go into it. Um, and yeah. It, yeah. So I think a good point was that uh, you're right, that the winters aren't as harsh. And then, um, 
you probably w- won't you wouldn't lose the amount of bulls that you know some like somewhere up high in the Rockies where it's cold and their their winters can be tough. Yeah, and I mean, this year alone, I know Wyoming, um, having grown up there, and I have some colleagues that still work for the Game and Fish Department up there, uh, you know, they had some, some really serious cutbacks on their licenses um, for mule deer and pronghorn, um, and, and in some regions, elk, because this winter was really that harsh, they had a lot of uh, overwinter mortality. And most of the time, it, that has that affects the younger population, so um, those fawns and calves that were born in the spring of the, that year prior. Um, those are the ones that are most susceptible to, to winter kill. But, you know, obviously older individuals that are in poor body condition, they can, they're susceptible to that winter as well. So, Gotcha, gotcha. You mentioned, um, you know, coming to work and things, you know, always being kind of dynamic. Um, is there anything happening right now or anything that you've noticed uh, while being the manager that's kind of surprised you in either a good or bad way? And that, um, or, you know, some crazy challenges that you've had that you're struggling with right now, or things that are just amazing, like, wow, this is, you know, something that hunters or, you know, anyone listening would want to know that's, wow, this is crazy that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean, I think probably for me, the biggest challenge um, that I've seen since I started in this position was that development of the hunting and um well, what we call the elk rule, right? <clears throat> so establishing those hunt dates, coming up with those population estimates, uh, looking at how many licenses we can allocate for each herd unit. Um, and th- certainly there's uh, aspects of all of that that I just mentioned that have uh, challenges. Um, but for me, it was the first time I'd gone through um, kind of dealing with a game commission and, and gathering public input um, gathering internal input from our our game wardens and our regional wildlife biologists, and trying to incorporate as much of that as as you could um, into you know what you understand is happening with a population, um, because you know from the outside it's it's easy to think about okay well if our population is doing this and we want to be able to harvest this many you know it it, it kind of seems like an easy numbers game right. Um, but that's really only considering the biological carrying capacity of that population. And what's interesting and that I've learned a lot about in this last year is incorporating that, that public component um, and, and dealing with and, and kind of melding it with what we call um, – now I'm not going to remember what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, uh, social tolerance. So, like, right. you know, how – how well are these animals tolerated on the landscape? Um, you know, because almost <clears throat> almost 40% of the state of New Mexico is privately owned. Mm. And a lot of that uh, land acts as wintering ground, important wintering ground for these elk herds. And so you kind of have to strike a balance between, you know, what is the, what is it that the landscape can can maintain and sustain as a population? And and what is it that the, the people that also live there can tolerate and, and what is their tolerance level with, you know, this big herd of elk that, that come down onto their property and they push over their fences and, you know, they cause all this damage on their croplands. And, and you know, so there's, there's definitely a component of it uh, where you're incorporating the, the human landscape into it as well. Hmm. And that's, you know, and that's across the board. And it's because wildlife is, 
is managed as a public trust. You know, it's it's not our wildlife. It's it's everybody's wildlife. It's the public. It's a public resource. Mm-hmm. And so incorporating the, the public aspect of it all and, and kind of uh, filtering that through the sieve of a wildlife game commission, um, it, it was definitely a challenge, and, and I learned a lot. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'd love to dig down on that. Um, and the more you... I, I, from what I've seen anyway, anyway the, the more you investigate that, the more, in some ways, it becomes a little bit more and more uncomfortable, if that makes sense. I, um, Looking at it from a completely objective point of view, black and white, me personally, and I could be wrong in this, but me personally, I see it as you have a specialist that's studying the area, studying the animals, let them make the decisions, right? That's that's their job to manage the game. Mm-hmm. How many are supposed to be there? Um, if you're you're gonna figure in um, uh, uh, hunters who want to hunt uh, for meat versus game or uh, quality animals, your job is doing that. You're like, okay, we have these sections. We have this amount of uh, nutrients on the landscape, this is what the carrying capacity is, This, is, and you're making those decisions. To me, uh, and it's fair that the public has, uh, you know, a say at least, but I, what is the ratio? Like, or is it, is it, is there no ratio, or is it really depends on the amount of public outcry? At what point does public outcry overtake science yeah that's that's a really good question um and it, i think it kind of depends on the topic and it depends on the region um but it's it, it really is kind of trying to incorporate what the public needs are and, and what the, the the private sector so all the people that own a lot of the the property and the habitat that's being used by the elk um it, it really kind of depends on how much, how much of an issue or how much of a problem uh, those elk populations are causing, or um, you know, if if some of those complaints are in alignment with what you know we understand is happening with that population, then that's okay. We can say, yeah, sure, this population can afford to, you know, have more individuals harvested from it, and we can adjust those licenses accordingly. Um, and in other areas, you know, certainly, you know, there's some parts of the state that uh, that have a lot more of that kind of pressure from wildlife during the winter seasons, especially. Um, and you know, the the lowlands and and some of these mesas are are just prime for agriculture. And so, mm. you know, to to elk, you know, that alfalfa field is like, you know, it's a field of ice cream. You yeah. know, would I be out? Would I want to be out there foraging and having to move around and, and find wild grasses, native grasses, you know, and and live the hard life of being a wild elk, or do I want to just jump <laughs> over and or through this fence and get access to this, you know, this ice cream grass here? Yeah. Um, and so, it, it is. It's it's a hard balance to strike. It really is. Um, and, and you don't want to walk that line of, of being this government agency that, that knows best and is going to tell you what to do, right? Mm. Because you can really, really, like, get into dangerous territory or hot water really quickly. Mm. Um, especially, you know, when you're dealing with um, nonprofits or, or, you know, um, land associations, cattle growing associations, things along that nature that, 
you know, these, these people have come together. They've, they've had these organized groups for many, many years, decades, you know, sometimes generations in these, um, in these ranch lands. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to overstep that boundary of, of saying, well, we understand that this is your land, but it's public wildlife, you know? And so where do you strike that balance of saying, okay, uh, we understand that, you know, these elk are coming on to your, to your property, your deeded property, you know, and, and you're providing a service to these elk, you know, you're providing winter range for these elk or, you know, the damages that you're incurring because of these elk, you know, uh, that's, that's something that we can't, you know, reimburse you for. And so there, there is this give and take, um, because, you know, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, we aren't as big of an agency or as well-funded of as an, an agency as some of the Northern Rocky states. So we don't have, you know, a depredation um, payment program. Mm. You know, we can't go to a rancher who has tons and tons of elk, you know, a couple hundred elk on his property every winter that are just, you know, killing his winter crop uh, and just like taking from that, that individual's pocket, you know, literally by, by affecting their livelihood. And so... <clears throat> We, we try to strike that balance, um, but then we also have what's called the E-plus program, which stands for the Elk Public Lands Use System. And essentially, um, depending on where you are in the state, if you're in close proximity to really good elk habitat, and we know that there are elk you know, coming and going from your property, and, and you, know, you want to sign up your, your land, you can, you can enlist in the E-plus program and, you know, to try to offset some of those losses that you incur from this public wildlife being on your property and eating your crops, you know, we then will allocate those, those property owners some licenses. Mm. Uh, and it's based on, you know, the, the land parcel size, how much deeded property you own. Um, and it's also based upon how good the habitat is that you're, you know, providing these elk. Mm -hmm. So there's an assessment that goes into it, but, you know, the idea is, you know, we understand that, you know, you're, t you're probably taking a loss, you're fixing fences, you know, you're dealing with these animals that are taking food from the mouths of your cattle. So we want to give you the opportunity to try to make up for some of those losses. Mm. And that's the idea behind the E plus program. So again, it's, it's kind of this balance of, of what we understand is the, the carrying capacity for the landscape and this social tolerance capacity. It sounds like a cool program, actually. Um, I mean, I purchased a piece of property down in the Fence Lake area, and I heard heard about the program, and it seemed to make sense to me. Um, but with anything, I mean, you're going to have people who agree or don't agree with, with whatever it is. For the people who don't agree with the program or have issues with it, is there a an avenue for those people to put in suggestions for them to say, hey, I think that this program... And again, I don't know too much about the program, but if if they said, "Hey, you know this this is not I don't I don't like this or anything, whether it's this the E plus or anything else," do you have an avenue with Game and Fish to where you know you can put in and and actually get listened to, like somebody can get back with you? Yeah, so you know it's not uncommon for people to just call my my phone line directly and talk to me about some of the issues that they're having. Um, if it's an emergent issue that they want to discuss uh, about the department, maybe funding for, for some of the fence replacements, um, we do have some of that through our E-plus program and our private lands coordinator. Um, 
you know, we can pay for materials for that fence to be replaced or repaired. Um, so if it's an emergent issue like that, I'll, I'll kind of direct them to the E-plus biologists and their managers because it is kind of a separate division, um, the private lands elk use. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, if if folks are feeling like, you know, their hunt that they've hunted for the last 20 years has, has seen a decline in the quality of the bulls or, you know, the, the number of individuals that they're seeing or they're concerned about the habitat, uh, you know, certainly we filled some of those calls and, you know, no matter whether or not it's a it's a rule cycle year, um, we'll take that into consideration. I mean, we have a, a living list of, of all the f- calls that come in, you know, and people have complaints and their concerns. And, you know, a lot of those are incorporated into when we make those final decisions. You know, we take a look at that list and we say, okay, you know, based on what we know, let's incorporate all these public comments uh, and see where it fits into the picture and see how we can make adjustments and where. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, and we do. We we solicit the public. We do have public uh, hearings during the rule cycle. We'll, we'll travel the state and go to all the regional offices. We invite people to come to those meetings, uh, and you know we'll discuss all the plans that we have for that rule cycle, and then we'll open it up for discussion and questions. We'll take those those concerns back with us to this office. Um, and then you know we, we have an open line um, email address that goes straight to you know the, the biologists at the state level that then they are cataloged and, and tried to take into consideration as well. Great, great. You've been very uh, you know uh, approachable to me, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, you got back to me real quick, and here we are sitting down. So this is that's awesome. And you don't know me from Adam, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's great. Um, so with elk and you being the elk manager, uh, and there's so many questions I could keep going on on the the vein that we're in, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit and um, just talk elk. You know, um, I'm fascinated by them. Uh, I don't know much about them. Uh, I've uh, contrast my hunting with uh, axis deer uh, in Hawaii uh, with hunting elk here, and it's it's wildly different. Uh, they're just so much more. They're of course, you know, visually just so much bigger. They're very vocal. They're uh, mysterious. I feel too. Um, and there's a. <laughs> I'm sure. I've, there's a kinship out there with other hunters when I say this. There's something really magical about the animal. Um, could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, carrying on a hunting tradition, I mean, we're we're talking about traditions that go all the way back to the Neolithic era, you know, when we first realized that we could use tools to, to harvest animals and, and, you know, keep our families alive. And whether or not that was a nomadic tribe or whether or not we were starting to, to cultivate agriculture, I mean, when you tap into the the hunting spirit, I mean, you're tapping into a tradition that's thousands, if not tens of thousands of years old. And so, um, you know, and I, and I think when you speak to, you know, this, the elk being this majestic animal, you know, I think, I think a lot of people feel that way um, because they, they can be so elusive. You know, if you've ever hunted elk or chased after elk in, in pinion and juniper, you know, you can lose a, a group of a hundred elk in a matter of seconds, and you think that you have your eyes on them and you know where they're going, but they just disappear, and it's amazing because you're like, oh my god, I thought, you know, I, I 
could have swore these elk were going to go right up over this ridge or follow this gully. And, you know, you look down for two seconds and they're gone. Yeah. So, I mean, they're very, very good and adept at, at finding their way around without being detected. Um, and so I think that kind of feeds into this elusive, you know, kind of mysterious, majestic animal given their size. Um, and not to mention, I mean, you know, you look at a, a mature bull and, and the way that they carry themselves, you know, especially during the rut and they're just so vocal and they're, you know, that piercing bugle that goes miles through the woods. It's, it's just something that like it reaches into a primal part of you. Right. I mean, yeah. you just, your heart starts to, to race and you just start breathing heavy. Like even if you're not carrying a rifle, you know, yeah. like that, that sound is just like ingrained inside of you to like, to rouse this excitement, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you in, in mm. you know, that appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, my first exposure, uh, to, to them was that, um, that feeling that you just, just described that, that your heart's pounding. You don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, you're just, you're so excited and you're a little scared. You're not knowing really what's kind of happening. And, um, I was talking to Oren about this, like just being a late onset hunter, uh, and not, you know, you know, taking, you know, living a, a whole life and not having a rifle in your hand. And then all of a sudden being in that atmosphere where you're hunting an animal, I was trying to tell him that I've heard it described as like a room in your house that, um, that you haven't opened yet. And then when you open it and you look around in there, and you're like, I didn't even know that I had these feelings. I didn't yeah. know that I all this stuff was in here. And your room, my room, is humongous. I mean, you could have a small room and be like, oh yeah, this is this is part of me, you know. Yeah. But for me personally, my room is like, I, there's like I found a whole nother house. Yeah. You know. Um, so, um, I mean, that's the reason for us sitting here right now. I mean, that's how uh, how strongly I feel about it and how much I want to know about it. Um, especially again, being late onset, if I was younger and I had a dad that took me hunting all the time, I mean, you'd get that. Right. But, but I didn't, you know, and elk more than anything else. I mean, hunting axis deer is great. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're amazing. They're beautiful. Their behavior is interesting. They run in herds and they're a delicious table fare. I mean, they're, it's, it's just great all the way around. And there's a lot of them in Hawaii and, uh, they're very lucky there. They don't have tags, and they can hunt pretty much all year round. Um, so, um, but here they're managed. You know, to your point, you're, they're managed, especially in this state. And from what I feel, I'm, I'm novice again, but from what I've seen, managed very, very well here. Um, and from being out in the field with them, I this is not. I haven't hunted a lot of any other animals as well. Let me just throw that out there. This would be my first year hunting mule deer. I've seen white-tailed deer. I haven't hunted them as well. There's a huge culture of that. We could dive into that at some point. But me personally for elk, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really connected, you know, with that whole primal thing with them, them being so vocal and so elusive. And that's happened to me, what you just described being out in the sage and the juniper and, and you're thinking that they're right there and you're hearing them. And then all of a sudden, what, what just happened? Like the wind didn't switch. I didn't even take a step. Like what, wh where are they now? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this, this weird thing about them. And what I wanted to ask you more than anything is that 
do you know anything about their intelligence or is this is this all primal with them like what or is it a combination of the two are they have you been out there and you're like that's what that bull just did is incredibly smart that's on a whole nother level yeah, yeah well i mean it's interesting that you ask that because this is kind of a it's an up and coming field of research in in ungulates and uh with the um the lab that I came out of in grad school, um, Matt Kaufman and uh, Kevin Monteith at the University of Wyoming, um, they've been doing quite a bit of research looking at learned behaviors um, and, and discerning what's innate and what's learned. And a lot of what they're discovering is, you know, these migration routes, especially with mule deer in, in you know, the western part of Wyoming, they're learning that, you know, these animals, they'll use the same migration route within like 50 meters of where they migrated last year year after year spring and fall they're they're migrating you know over 200 miles some of these mule deer and then they look at their offspring and you know those offspring are using the same trails because they're following their mothers that first year you know year and a half Mm -hmm. and so you know and then that's transferred to the next generation and the next generation and and it's not it's not like hardwired like it would be with some birds. I mean, there's been a lot of research to look at behavior in birds and whether or not their song or their migratory patterns are innate. Um, so we're, we're kind of just starting to dip our toes into this pool of of whether or not some of these behaviors are learned. Um, but you know, so some of these in- individuals they'll switch strategies and they won't be migratory one year for whatever reason if they're if perhaps the the habitat conditions aren't right or something about where they overwinter is particularly good that year, then they'll either migrate short distances or they won't migrate at all. Hmm. So I'm, I'm actually interested in kind of looking at some of that. We have um, probably about 600 GPS collars on elk across the state right now. And some of those, you know, data sets go back a few years where, you know, in 2020, we had a really dry year. Uh, and, and in contrast, this year has been um, exceptionally wet, especially in the spring. And so, you know, as we approach the, the June and, and July kind of monsoonal season and then into the fall, you know, if we have a, a difference in precipitation pattern, you know, how is that going to affect some of their behaviors? Are they going to still migrate? Are they going to the same places? Mm. Or are some of them going to switch their strategies because things are so good down low? Um, <clears throat> so there's there's a lot of these things that are learned. And another, another really interesting thing um, coming out of New Mexico State University is looking at how elk that are more exposed to the Mexican wolf are changing their behaviors uh, to be more adaptive to that increase in, in predation predator or uh, predation pressure, so they're changing the times in which they're using different landscapes that would be otherwise considered um, more dangerous or or higher in predation risk. They're using those landscapes in a time that wouldn't necessarily be considered normal. So they're they're drawing contrasts between these elk that are not exposed to as many wolves to the wolves or the elk that are exposed to higher numbers of wolves and looking at, okay, you know, they're, they're changing their behavior and when, when they're using these habitats, they're also uh, being able to multitask where, you know, they're, they're able to chew their cud. So uh, what that means is basically um, they have a huge 
four st- four chambered stomach, and the first chamber of that is called the rumen. So they ingest just tons and tons of, of vegetation. And then when they're resting, uh, typically they just go lay in the shade, uh, but they'll regurgitate some of that because it's it's you know really hard to digest um, all the cellulose in there. So they have all this bacteria in the rumen that's helping break down the cellulose, but they regurgitate some of the big chunks and chew it and chew it and chew it. So it's a little bit easier for you know the bacteria to to break down and then for them to digest. Well, what they're learning now in some of these elk in the Gila is that they're changing their behavior to where they're they're doing this, they're chewing and still being vigilant. So their ears are erect, they're looking around for predators, you know, they're they're totally aware of their surroundings and and again trying to decrease their risk of predation. We contrast that with elk that are not in, you know, high uh, densities of wolves and they're not doing this. Mm. You know, normally elk are they're doing one thing at a time. They're moving, they're feeding, they're chewing. Or they're vigilant. They, often, many of those, many times, those things don't overlap. Or when they do, it's for very short periods of time. Mm. But these elk that are in these higher concentrations of, of predators, you know, they're they're changing their behaviors. They're learning to adapt because mm. if they don't, then they're more susceptible to be predated upon. Yeah. As you were talking, I thought about what just jumped into my my head was stress. Like, um, and then of course we're human. So I'm thinking about a human, uh, how we respond to stress with cortisol levels and, um, it, it's, it would affect our health, right? Stress affects our health. We, we get heart attacks. We, we go bald. We, you know, (laughs) our hair thins, uh, you know, we get fat, whatever it is, not knowing anything about, um, the elk and, and, or other animals, an elk that is constantly stressed this way, that's you know chewing his cud while his ears are erect and he's looking around, it just gives me this feeling of stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Would that, and I don't know if you'd know this, but would that help or would that uh, not help, but would it affect that elk's um, health? Would, it, would they still grow those big, thick, uh, antlers? Will they still look healthy? Will they still have that health of an elk that's sitting in the shade, laying down, look just relaxed, again, you know, regurgitating and doing what he's supposed to be in a relaxed state rather than a, a herd that's constantly looking out for that Mexican wolf? Yeah. No, and that's that's a good point. I mean, stressors, you know, whether they're environmental um being from the you know the bottom up, what their forage and habitat looks like, or from the top down from predators, um, you know, stresses certainly have an effect on, on you know, reproductive success or you know, birth weight, which we know is associated with survival in that first year for for calves. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea behind them being able to multitask mm-hmm. is to offset that that negative effect. Um, so if you know if they were behaving like a normal elk does, then they're spending more time being vigilant and less time foraging or less time chewing that cud, you know, to be a little bit more digestible. And so the adaptation of them being able to do multiple things at once is to hopefully offset that negative effect of the cortisol levels and and the stresses. Certainly they are more stressed because they they are seeing higher levels of vigilance. Mm. You know, they are spending more time looking around. 
um, and, and trying to make sure that they're in the clear. Um, but again, they're, they're offsetting that a little bit by continuing to feed. Uh, you know, there'll be one or two sentinels in a group that are watching while everybody else is feeding, and then they'll kind of take turns as to who's looking out. Um, but then they're also, you know, they're chewing while they're, while they're moving or they're chewing while they're vigilant. Um, you know, the idea is hopefully that that is enough to kind of offset some of those, uh, those higher stress levels. And, you know, at the individual level, um, being able to try and uh, avoid being predated upon by shifting the times in which they're using some of those habitats as well. Mm. Have you seen, or would you know, um, the comparison of the two, like a, a, like a, knowing that this herd is in a reserve and the pressure is very low or none at all maybe versus a high stress level herd that's constantly on the lookout not just for predators whether it's mountain lions or or bear or um or wolves or all all of those and hunters have you seen that difference in those two herds uh like genetically um, or just visually, like looking at them and saying, this herd is beautiful. Like they're constantly healthy. Their coats look good. They're, mm-hmm. The bulls are, are they, their trophy animals are mature quality animals versus over here where it looks like X is happening. Have you seen that or no? I mean, I unfortunately, I don't spend enough time in the field oh, okay. <laughs> anymore to be able to discern that like in a visual level. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, with the research that is happening with uh, NMSU that we're collaborating with, um, a lot of those projects are, are kind of wrapping up right now. But, um, you know, a big component of that is looking at and drawing contrast between, you know, these these elk that have uh, a lower number of, of predators. So they, they're not totally... Um, they're not totally removed from where the where the wolves are, but they're in much lower density. Right, um, and so there there may be one pack in the vicinity of say fifteen to twenty miles, whereas you know the higher density, um, higher density wolf locations and in those herds, you know they're in areas that we know that we have you know five or six packs within you know a twenty mile radius, something like that. Um, and those aren't specific numbers. Don't quote me on that. But sure. but the idea there is, you know, looking at those survival rates, looking at, um, you know, individual success and breeding, and and how how long the calves are able to survive. Um, there there weren't any you know specific biometrics taken. Uh, you know, we didn't do like ultrasound or any of that stuff to look at you know uh, whether or not those. Was, in the higher wolf density or in lower body condition or anything like that. Mm. Um, so we're kind of looking at it from a population level uh, at the demographics, survival rates, predation rates, encounter rates, things along that nature. Um, th- which isn't to say that there isn't research out there. I'm just not as familiar with it to say one way or the other that it has an effect. Sure. No, I understand. It just kind of is going through my mind as you mentioned it because, of course, we're human beings. So I'm mentioning, yeah, I'm thinking about the stress that I would feel like my God, I'd be bald and fat, and like, like, <laughs> always worrying and always looking out. You yeah, know, if I had yeah. if I had wolves chasing me, certainly. You know, so uh, just wondering if that, um, and that's a good point. I wonder if like somebody's picked up that ball to run with it to see if there's a, a stress component. Now, do they have? Um, yeah, this is a dumb, might be a dumb question, but do they have cortisol? Like, is it? Do they have stress? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh, glucocorticoids is what you look for, and you can measure it. You can actually measure it in uh, 
in fresh fecal samples. Oh, cool. Um, so there are there are studies out there that look at that. That would be cool. Yeah. That'd be a cool yeah. project. And you man. can pick it up in the in the blood as well. Right so on. If you have the animal in hand, often we'll we'll take blood samples and stuff like that, um, looking for pregnancy rates and also disease. But you know, if you wanted to, you could dive down into the the glucocorticoids and look at stress levels and stuff. Oh, that'd be neat. That just sounds fascinating to to, to think about. Um, do do <laughs> another dumb question. Um, I should just not even say dumb question anymore and just ask it because because <laughs> they're all they're all pretty silly. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I, I get I get it from all all sides of the field. Yeah. Um, do elk have heart attacks? Can they have a heart attack? Can they get like you know uh, be stressed out that much to where like it affects their cardiovascular system? Sure. Yeah, I could see that. You know. Uh, any any animal that has a cardiovascular system, you know, if you stress it to the max, absolutely, you can you can get a seizure of the heart. Uh, I know, you know, when we're trying to do capture efforts with a helicopter, um, you know, we have a time limit, especially with calves. Um, you you know, you can't run them too far. If it's too warm, we won't capture. You know, if it, if they're running too far without bedding down, and we can't get them, uh, you know, with a net gun or something, then you know, we just we we stop. Yeah. pursuing because yeah. you know we're we're interested in the in the welfare of that animal right we sure. we, we want to try to minimize as much of that of the mortalities that we can um so certainly you know i think if if you have an older individual or a sick individual um then, then you know they're you know lag behind a little bit in the in the herd and you know if they're run too hard i could i could certainly see something like that happen Interesting. Um, and staying in, uh, in in that kind of realm as far as uh, their health, uh, are you seeing anything, um, for example, uh, I heard a podcast where they were talking about testing for COVID on, in either deer, I think it was deer, deer, and I don't even think that they mentioned elk, but do you do anything like that? I mean, are there any health problems that you're seeing in your herds as far as that or do you test for covid or do you test for um i know it sounds strange to some people probably listening out there but it's real like people have tested deer for covid right and there's supposedly a lot of them are testing positive for that is there any are there any health issues with your herds here in new mexico that you that you could mention um the one that comes to mind is is cwd which is chronic wasting disease um, it's a neurological disorder, um, caused by a mutated folded protein called a prion. Um, and it affects the neurological system, mainly the, the brain, the brainstem and the spinal cord. Um, and it's a hundred percent mortality. Uh, and fortunately it takes a few years to, to create the symptomatic effects. Um, and those, uh, s- symptomatic meaning, you know, they, they, stop eating, they become lethargic. Um, oftentimes they lose fear of humans or predators. Um, they, you know, have their heads hanging low with their ears down. Um, and essentially they just starve to death. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a really big concern. Um, there's, there's been a lot of documented cases, um, especially Wyoming and Colorado has, has CWD. Um, parts of Texas have, have, um, found CWD in parts of their state as well. Uh, it's, it's a big concern for ungulates, um, and it does affect all the ungulates. And so we do have a CWD monitoring program, um, where we, we either, uh, solicit 
hunters to provide samples for us, um, either by coming to a Game and Fish office um, where we can take the samples, um, or we can also get samples from some of the taxidermied um, taxidermy shops around the state. And we're actually we're kind of ramping up our CWD testing, knowing that some of our neighbor states are detecting it. Um, we don't know that they're very high prevalence rates. Uh, you know, we're not at the level where we're like really concerned and, and we have to stop everything and, and really kind of um, assess the situation because it's a huge, huge issue and concern. But, you know, we have detected CWD in uh, two of our game management units, um, Unit 34 and Unit 19. And we do have some uh, recommendations for hunters you know, um, to try to limit the spread of that, you know, we, tr we ask them to, to debone the animal, take only, only flesh. Um, if they're going to get them out done, you know, we try to ask them to, to have it done there so that they're not transporting brain matter or any, or any of those neurological tissues to another part of the state uh, or to their own home state, uh, things along that nature. So there are some precautionary measures that we're taking to try to limit that spread. Um, and, you know, the prevalence rates in those two units is still relatively low. Uh, we, we maybe get a positive deer or elk, um, maybe a couple every three years. Mm -hmm. And so it's, so it's really not, you know, a high prevalence rate, but it is something that we, you know, are trying to monitor throughout the state. Um, we, we're ramping up more of our testing efforts in the northern part of the state, kind of with the border of, of Colorado um, as well as kind of the Sacramento Mountains, where we know it's it's present in the southern portion, um, and then you know areas that are um, that are adjacent to the Texas Panhandle. Gotcha. Um, now, for those who don't know about CWD, um, is it something that a hunter would have to look out for as far as eating the meat? I mean, can 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 CWD transfer to humans? What are the dangers of the uh, of harvesting the animal what are things to look out for or do we do we need to can we uh can we uh, ha harvest the animal and consume the animal and be healthy yeah so that's kind of a complicated question because the verdict on that is still somewhat out there's been quite a bit of research done uh, with human analog primates uh, mostly macaques and I believe, yeah, I'm going to say macaques because I can't remember the other one. Mm -hmm. um, but there has been some considerable research done looking at the transmission rates of CWD from known infected meat to a primate source. Um, and the results are somewhat difficult to interpret because in almost every instance where they would feed this animal, CWD infected meat, they would not, they would not get CWD themselves. Mm -hmm. But there were a couple of instances where they would feed these macaques brain tissue or uh, neurological tissue, and they and they could contract it. Now the current um, the current recommendations by um, the D Department of Health is to not consume um, any meat that is you know known to be from a contaminated animal. Uh, and, you know, we offer the testing for free to hunters. Um, and as a matter of fact, we, we have an incentive program for anybody that wants to submit a CWD sample from either a deer or an elk. Um, 
we'll put your name goes into a hat for a special drawing for either an oryx hunt or a mature bull elk hunt. Yeah. Uh, and those those are that raffle is held every year. And so it's a little bit of an incentive just to try to get people to to provide samples. Um, and we are getting, you know, more and more samples from some of the private ranches in the areas that I discussed earlier. Um, but certainly, you know, if, if you're a hunter out there and, you know, and you see an animal that's looking like it's just not fearful and maybe is a little delirious or a little confused, um, disoriented, heads hanging low, ears, ears are low, uh, you know, and just doesn't look like it's in very good body condition. I would, I would probably wait and harvest a different animal. Uh, and then in addition to that, I would go ahead and, you know, take a location, get a hold of your game warden, your local game warden, or call one of the game, uh, department offices. And we'll dispatch, we'll dispatch a, a game warden out there to take a look. Um, if it does look like it's an infected animal, they'd the likely take that, send it to the lab to be tested. Um, but yeah, currently right now, the Department of Health recommendation is to not consume CWD infected meat. So if, if hunters want to submit those samples to us, um, we do send them off in batches and try to get them, uh, try to get those results back as quickly as possible. And then we post those CWD results on our webpage with the license number um, associated with that license. There's no, there's no personal information, the hunter's name and address. None of that is, is listed on there, just your license number. Cool. Cool. Um, is there a, um, like I harvested a, an elk, right? And I, and I, and I bring it here and, but I want to eat the meat as well. So a couple of things. One is, are you just taking brain matter or is it any, can you find it anywhere in the animal? And then the other part of that is how long does it take for you to say, Hey, it's positive. Yeah. You can go ahead and, and eat that meat. So no, we don't take any, any of the meat so your steaks are safe <laughs> thank uh, you <laughs> yeah no we're gonna have to take this whole right rear quarter to send it into the lab no uh <laughs> no they they take um what's called the obex which is um the where the part of the brain stem meets the spinal cord mm. um and then uh part of the spinal cord as well right there close to the top of the the vertebra and that's where the highest concentration of the cwd um, can be found, and that's why it's often tested there. We can also take um, the retropharyngeal lymph node. Um, as as the prion concentrations get higher and higher, you know they move into the lymph system. That's part of the immunity system, um, and they can be detected there. And so, we just take those neurological and, and immunological samples, send them to the lab, and then at that point, you know I most people are going to take their animal to a processor or they'll process it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I would certainly wait. Um, if you're going to send in a sample, wait until you know what those, those results are before consuming, just hanging out in the freezer. I know you want to have some steaks, um, mm -hmm. but usually it's just a couple of weeks. And for the most part, you know, you, you don't have to worry about it. New Mexico's rates are very, very low. Um, but you know, if you're harvesting in unit 34, I would recommend getting it tested because we do know that the you know the CWD is there, um, and then in unit nineteen. But we just we just got away, just done away with the elk hunts in unit nineteen. That's the white sense missile range. There was only a few tags every year. Um, so for, for elk, for elk, for yeah. elk. Gotcha. So, but that also applies to deer, right? Um, so any of the ungulates, then you know if you're going to harvest in unit thirty four, um, I would I would recommend going ahead and getting that tested. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, while we're on units and, and elk, um, 
your top units for uh, from what you're seeing anyway right now uh, and trends your top units for harvesting uh, a mature bull like in the state um, I've I've read a little bit and I know like certain areas in the Gila and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, are good but are you seeing any trends to any other units that we're like wow they're, they're, they're we're really seeing a lot of mature bulls here or are we are you seeing the opposite of that in that um, man this is usually known for mm-hmm. trophy animals we're not seeing a lot here any trends um yeah like you had mentioned the gila uh, national forest and the gila wilderness um, all of the gmu's 15 and 16 a through e um, they're all managed as quality hunt management zones um, again that's to try to get those older age class individuals um, there's typically lots of, of 300, 350 plus um, class bulls that are pulled out of there each year. Um, we have seen an increase in the in the bull to cow ratio in the northern part of the Sacramento mountains. So kind of up by Rio Doso um, and in that area between Rio Doso and Capitan. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of things that are contributing to that. Uh, one, it's a it's a really really healthy population. Um, there's a tribal uh, tribal reservation between Unit 34 and Unit 36 um, that we believe is acting as a source population. They have a pretty um, pretty conservative harvest regime there, and so we believe that a lot of those elk are, are coming on to public lands on either side of the reservation, and and that's why you have you know these really really robust populations, but. Uh, in that northern section, we do have the some of the highest bull-to-cow ratios in the state. I mean, we're talking like 65 to 70 bulls per 100 cows. Wow. Um, which isn't to say that they're all monsters. Obviously, yeah. when you have that many bulls you know, competing against one another, um, but there certainly are still lots and lots of, of good-sized bulls up there. It's a, a very large uh, wilderness area up there that acts as escape terrain. So, you know, plenty of those bulls are, are escaping to an older age class. Wow, that's great. Yeah. What units are those? Uh, unit 30, 36, excuse me, is the Rio Doso and northern Sacramento Mountains. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow, that's good to know. Um, any areas where you're seeing um, like a decline or you mentioned the Mexican wolf, are you seeing areas where the you're, you're having more robust wolf population and then seeing like that really kind of impact the elk? Um. There certainly is some take from Mexican wolf population of elk. I mean, we, we all understand and know that uh, they do prey upon adult elk. Um, they do prey a little bit on some of the juveniles, but not as much as, say, mountain lions or black bears or coyotes. Um, mm. Because they're pack animals, they tend to, tend to go for larger prey. Um, we haven't noticed, per se, a large impact on the bull population and, and the quality of bulls, um, you know, but we don't, we also don't take measurements of antlers from all the, all the animals that are, that are killed. If, if hunters want to go and get those animals scored, say for Boone and Crockett record books, then, you know, then they do that or some of our officers can do that as well, but we don't actively, you know, take those measurements. That being said, I'm trying to implement a new, um, data collection regime where we are looking at 
you know, the average antler size that's being harvested. And, and what we're going to do, we're going to try to start this in the Gila um, because it is, you know, the area that's known for, you know, quality bulls, uh, older age class bulls. And there is this concern of, you know, the Mexican wolf having an impact on the survival of some of these older bulls. Um, so what we're going to try to implement in the next year or so is a tooth aging uh, data set where we, you know, we'll maybe send out some envelopes to hunters, a random assortment of uh, at least bull hunters and probably some cows so we're not getting biased data. Um, but we're going to start collecting some of the incisor teeth. Um, then we can send those off to a lab and, and they can actually, they'll shave them down real thin and just like a tree, uh, you can count the number of rings uh, oh, inside cool. the tooth. Yeah, so they, they put on a layer of, of what's called cementum uh, every year that they're alive. And so you can count the number of rings and get an accurate age of that individual. And so what we're going to try to start doing is is gathering that data set in conjunction with antler size and configurations to at least start looking at some of those trends to say, okay, you know, is there a downturn in the average bull size given their age? Or are we seeing a trend where, you know, maybe 10 years ago we were harvesting six, seven-year-old bulls and now we're only harvesting four or five-year-old bulls Mm. and what's going on there? Do we need to make adjustments? Um, So, you know, anecdotally, you talk to some of the hunters uh, and outfitters that have been there for years and years and some of them say, yeah, it's it's hard to find a 380-class bull. Well, it's hard to find a 380-class bull anyways. Mm. Um, But certainly, you know, with a full predator assemblage, um, and hunting pressure, you know, there's there's going to be some difficulties in, in locating those animals. But then, that, you know, there's also environmental factors that, that can contribute to that as well. I mean, you look at a couple of years ago in 2020, you know, when we had that uh, really dry year, we had a late monsoon. You, you see a, a higher rate of, of broken antlers. Um, you know, as these elk are not getting the highest nutrition as they finish off growing their antlers, uh, they tend to be less dense. That bone material is more fragile and breaks when they're sparring. They're not growing as large of antlers. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play. And when we start to collect the information that is pertaining to the age, um, then we'll have another piece of the puzzle that'll help us understand that question. Gotcha. That's the first thing that I thought about when you were talking about their, their, uh, being stressed by the you know predators and that kind of thing, I was like, man, I wonder if it affects that you know because I've heard about broken antlers, their antlers breaking off and that kind of thing, and if it affects how brittle they are, how healthy they are in that way. So yeah, just thought that was super interesting. Um, I wanted to dig in on the Mexican wolf a little bit, but I kind of actually want to switch gears and talk about the different kinds of elk. Um, the Roosevelt elk versus the Rocky Mountain elk versus the Thule elk. And then I think there was one other one that is now extinct. Um, here, there's only one type, and that's the Rocky Mountain elk, correct? Correct. Um, do you know, uh, I've hunted up in uh, Washington, been lucky in, enough to be up there and, and be in real thick timber with Roosevelt's too, and that's pretty exciting. Um, do you know any big differences between those ones we just mentioned um could you speak to kind of what they look like you know visually and or their behavior if, the, if there really are any differences in, in in those elk yeah so i mean the biggest differences between what we have here the rocky mountain elk and um say the roosevelt elk is is body size 
Um, Rocky Mountain elk uh, have the largest antlers. They typically grow the largest antlers of any of the subspecies in North America. Um, Roosevelt elk have the biggest body size um, on an amplitude of maybe one to 200 pounds uh, for a bull, for a mature bull, uh, which is kind of contrary to what you would think, right? I mean, you, they're living in some pretty dense woods yeah. uh, where it probably is a little bit more difficult to get around. Um, but other than that, I mean, um, there's probably some some behavioral differences. I, I haven't spent a lot of time around the other subspecies, so I can't speak to it specifically. Sure. Um, but just knowing that they have different habitat types and different predator assemblages, um, you know, there might be some differences in, in when they're using what, what types of habitat or what habitats that they're keying into, you know, during specific times of year. Uh, you know, they probably have a lot more understory uh, forage that they can feed on, whereas, you know, you go in underneath the Ponderosa forest out here and there's not a lot to eat, so it's kind of pushing them out into the meadows. So yeah. so there's going to be some differences there. But Maybe that's why they're so big. They got more in the cabinet. Oh, I'm, <laughs> man, I'm sure those guys are just fat and happy. <laughs> yeah. You look at fat percentages on them and they're probably at least a third again is more as much as some of the Rocky Mountain elk. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking that they're not as stressed. Um, but yeah, yeah you, you had mentioned the Merriam's elk, um, which yeah. is the one, the subspecies that was extirpated from New Mexico. Um, and they, you know, they were endemic to the Sacramento Mountains and uh, the southern part of the Gila. And uh, unfortunately, actually all of the elk in New Mexico were extirpated during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, I, I believe the last elk that was known um, was shot in 1909. Uh, and then three years later in 1912, um, a private landowner uh, was working with um, what was then kind of a biologist, uh, to start bringing elk in from Yellowstone. And so from 1912 up until, uh, I, th I think like the early 1960s, uh, there were various um, elk relocation programs, if you will, reintroduction. Um, and a good majority of those elk came from Yellowstone National Park. Mm. So we got a good genetic stock, uh, but they are all Rocky Mountain elk. The Merriam's elk is, is no longer with us. So is a, another silly question, is, is it possible that there's maybe some out there or is there, is there hybrid? Or Because I know like with mule deer in uh, New Mexico, I'm sorry, mule deer in Washington versus the black-tailed deer on the Cascades, there's like supposedly like a, almost like a hybrid area where you'll see characteristics of blacktail with mule deer um uh, and they're kind of the same similar species yeah. anyway right uh, yeah no and there's and there is some speculation you know some folks uh think that there still could be some genetic holdovers from the merriams i mean who's to say that we didn't you know back then we weren't flying elk surveys you right know? exactly we, we weren't covering every every drainage and ridge uh especially in the gila wilderness and some of those really hard to access places so you know it's entirely possible um and because they are so closely genetically related you know that it's possible that they could have um, interbred and we could have some hybrids out there i just I don't know of anybody that's done the genetic work to assess whether or not that's true. Interesting. Did they look a lot different or not really? Um, as far as I know, no, they're pretty similar in size. I, I see. Th I think the Merriams were a, a little bit larger, um, similar to the Roosevelt elk, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not quite sure if they had uh, larger antlers or, or similar size. I see. Yeah. That'd be cool to know if there's hybrids out there. And then also, I guess the same thing with Roosevelt's and, and how the blacktail and the muleys um, kind of uh, 
interbreed in that area, would you'd have the same thing with just asking because you, you're the elk guy. Would you have the same thing with uh, the Roosevelt and the Rocky Mountain there? Could you have hybrids? Or is that possible? I could see it being possible. I mean, with Roosevelt's and Rocky Mountains, I mean, they're just so they're just so geographically distinct. So that would be, that would be difficult. But with Merriam's and, and Rocky Mountain, it, it's it's possible that they could have interbred. I mean, mm-hmm. many subspecies are are close enough genetically that they could that they could successfully breed. Sure. And then the Thule, like, is that a? Or am I pronouncing that right? Thule. I believe so. Yeah. So you know anything? too much about them i know they're in california or they're yeah. a small herd in california right pretty much yeah in northern california i think um or or maybe uh closer down to the southern end of of the coastal range i, yeah. I don't really know much about the tools yeah. yeah yeah i just wondered about that um just driving driving through california quite a bit i was able to stop in that uh, uh preserve that they have there where you can actually see them in the high fenced area oh yeah yeah, I don't know if you've ever done that, but they're pretty pretty interesting. To, I took a, a bunch of snapshots of their um, the configuration of their uh, antlers, and uh-huh. they seem a little different to me. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, but yeah, it seem they seem different looking a little bit. It's possible. I mean, the red deer, um, which is the old old um, what I guess what do you want to call it, the old deer species over in Europe, um, yeah. they have a slightly different antler configuration Yeah, uh, where the, the terminal fork, um, instead of just forking, they typically uh, have a crown. Mm. Um, so it's it kind of a, a mass of, of three or four points that all come off of the same kind of terminus. So instead of just a, a branch, they'll have three or four, um, sometimes even five points off of that end that kind of create this little bit of a crown at the end of each of the antlers yeah um but that's I, interesting yeah I, I could see it happening in some of the subspecies out here too yeah those the, the, those red stag are pretty cool looking yeah. aren't they yeah wow, definitely neat. Uh, i know they have them down in texas i guess more in like high fence areas and stuff like that i also wondered about that because they have elk and a red stag down there too and if they interbreed i'm sure that they do Right. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, how neat is that? That's pretty cool. I will tell you one of the one of the most interesting like wildlife days I've ever had in my life was at the Prairie Creek Redwoods um, State Park in Northern California, and you know I was just out there hiking along, making my way out through these like uh, grass covered dunes, on my way out to the to the beach, and here's this this small herd of Roosevelt elk, Ooh, yeah. and they're they're like. 150 yards from the ocean you know and having grown up in wyoming it's like this is just like my mind doesn't even know how to compute this right like (laughs) i'm looking at elk on the beach like this doesn't even make any sense you know and then it's so i'm taking all these pictures you know i'm like wow this is amazing and and turn and walk away from them and then like not even a half an hour later, I'm looking at like harbor seals, you know, hauled up on the beach. And it's yeah. just like, this is the wildest thing, you know? Yeah. No, that's <laughs> so neat. That's so neat. I, I uh, had this, a similar experience in Washington like that, where there it's blacktail, blacktail deer on the beach out there. Yeah. And there are, there are elk out there too. The Roosevelt's are like right there pretty much on the beach. Um, you know, hit salt, the salt water's right there and that's, that's the sand and that. So it's it's nuts to yeah. think about that, and then be all the way out east, Washington, with the big Rocky Mountains out there. It's, it's neat. We have a wild world, don't we? Yeah, pretty neat. Um, 
I want to take a quick break, man. I got to. I've been drinking coffee here. I want to okay. hit, hit the bathroom real quick. <laughs> so we'll we'll press pause for one second here. Sure. All right, we're back after a intermission, bathroom intermission, which was nice. I've been drinking a lot of coffee this morning. Hey, it's Monday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is Monday, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, you know, I took the day off work to come talk to you. So oh, I'm like, I appreciate I'm not, it. I'm not getting paid for this. Well, this is almost <laughs> like a day off for me. So <laughs> that's good. Uh, yeah. I um, a little bit of my. I just kind of. I don't even know. I'm, I'm going to tell you this, but a little bit of my background. My day off work. I'm a, a PA physician assistant. I think. Did I tell you this? Yeah. 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 And uh, we. Uh, I do urgent care and occupational medicine, some ER stuff. And um, I was telling Oren this. Uh, I don't think we talked on the podcast, but before the podcast, Oren was like, "Why are you doing this? Like, what is this all about?" Well, I was like, "Well, the first thing is, is I, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm a novice. You know, seven years in, you still feel like a novice sure. to me, um, especially being late onset. And uh, so I said, I want to go to the source. I want to know what's going on right now, like from the expert. Tell me, tell me how it is, because I've heard from the hunters. Like right. I've been out there." But when you hear from the source, it's just different. And I would love everybody to listen to that and, and hear about how silly I am versus how smart this guy is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like That contrast is probably interesting. And then um, the other part of it is I was telling them how much like I, I kind of I kind of dislike my job from being inside all day yeah. underneath the fluorescent lights. You're just I mean, I worked eight to eight, you know, seven to seven for years. You know, whether that's 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you're inside for 12 hours, like legit grinding, seeing patients. And uh, sometimes three, four, maybe even five times a week if you're you know, really trying to get some, some money. And uh, it'll really wear you down. You know, you don't think about it. When you look at your paycheck, you're just like, oh, I'll keep working and sure. get a nice paycheck going. But what I was envious about with, you know, when I talked to Orin, I talked to you, is that your job is uh, you're outside, you're you're around these amazing animals, you're doing some amazing work as far as your management and research and those kinds of things. It just sounds like, uh, you know, an amazing lifestyle. So, um I certainly don't mind taking a day off to come chat with you about how how awesome your life is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I you know I uh, I appreciate what you're doing because I think um, I try to reach out and do some of the uh, public outreach stuff where I can, um, just to kind of promote a, a better understanding of what we do as a, as a state agency. And I think it's it's really nice to try to involve uh, those that are interested in, in learning more about you know game and fish and kind of what's going on. Uh, across the state research wise or management wise so so i appreciate what you do hey, thanks. Uh, for the podcast and, and then i also want to thank you for your service for you know being a physician um because i know physician assistant physicians assistant. okay <laughs> yeah. clear yeah. distinction there it's still appreciated uh you know i know you know you guys were run ragged and, and underappreciated you know starting with covid and and I'm sure it's just kind of run its run through the gambit, but uh, you know we appreciate you keeping us healthy and keeping us on the ground. Hey, thanks for that, and and vice versa. You're I honestly feel like you are just as important, if not more important, because you're keeping that aspect of um, a lot of a lot of people an aspect of wildlife that a lot of people don't see. Right, so you're the in in a way an unsung hero. We a lot, especially the hunters. They you know. You may go, a hunter may go his entire uh, hunting career or, you know, 
all through all his seasons and never speak to somebody like you. So um, if I feel like if people knew what you actually did, um, in addition to what they think they know, um, that I think a lot of people will be surprised. So let's maybe speak to that. Do you, is there anything that you, do you feel like the, the public doesn't know about your, your kind of job description? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, even going back to when I was a kid, um, you know, our assumption in, in our family, even though we were hunters, you know, was <clears throat> that, uh, game and fish, they just all run around in trucks and, and issue citations for not having a fishing license or, you know, poaching out of season and, and kind of our basic understanding of game and fish was that it's just another uh, law enforcement agency. And not to say that we don't have that. I think a, about a third of our personnel are game wardens across the state that do have a, a very important job of making sure people are doing what they're, you know, supposed to be doing ethically. Um, you know, there's a reason that we have a certain number of licenses uh, for hunting and or fishing in certain areas, you know. Um, and so those guys certainly do have an important job, and I want to thank them for what they do. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a lot of different avenues um, that the Game and Fish Department is involved with and, and that we do um, that maybe the public doesn't quite understand, um, you know, <clears throat> including what I do, you know, like monitoring populations, understanding what's happening on the ground, uh, coming up with estimates on how we can sustainably harvest or being involved with uh, improvement projects, trying to kind of bolster some of the populations that aren't doing well, um, having our hand in, in various research projects across the state. Um, you know, some of our biologists sit on graduate student committees um so we are part of that peer review process we're helping um we're helping their research and their research is helping our department you know those graduate students at the cooperative fish and wildlife research uh unit at new mexico state university uh you know they are kind of an extension of our research program they're doing a lot of the the hard uh hard boots on the ground, research efforts, and, and doing the number analysis and, and coming up with all sorts of interesting models and, and statistical analyses that, that kind of help us understand what's happening on the ground that, you know, especially at the species level, um, you know, our biologists, we're, so, we're spread so thin over so many different things that we don't have the time to, to really kind of dig down into some of these specifics. So, hmm. um, so being involved with, you know, those research projects and then you know, in addition, you know, we have a whole division here at the department that looks at, um, you know, various development, uh, whether it be, you know, road being cons constructed and where we can improve uh, connectivity of habitats by in, uh, installing overpasses or underpasses for wildlife. I mean, um, they also act as consult for some of like the wind turbine energy um, that's coming into a lot of the western states now or solar energy. You know, there's a lot of a lot of components that go into, you know, these big uh, landscape altering projects that, uh, you know, there's a lot of steps that go into before, during, and after these construction projects that um, that sometimes, you know, the Game and Fish is, is called upon to, to provide comment and, and maybe do some survey work to say, hey, you know, this threatened or endangered species might be affected by this. And um, and things along that nature. So, so there, there's a lot of different facets to game and fish, um, that, you know, a lot of people don't realize. And, you know, and there's, there's also stuff where we try to, you know, um, retain or recruit new hunters. I mean, our, our, um, 
sustainability as an agency into the future is dependent upon people being on the ground, fishing and hunting. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of our operational budget comes from the sale of those licenses. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of state money. We do get some federal match money, um, but, you know, a big part of our operational budget comes from the local sportsmen um, and their contributions through, you know, purchasing of licenses. And so um, so we do have a lot of these programs where we have, like, uh, youth hunt camps. Um, we try to get a lot of information about, uh, you know, like firearm safety. We teach all of the, the hunter education programs. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot of things that uh, – the information and education department put together to try to kind of recruit new hunters or uh, retain hunters that are, you know, they've been doing it for years and maybe they're not as interested or, or maybe trying to recruit, you know, like you said, uh, late onset hunters trying to, um, you know, bring some of these people into the sportsman community. Mm. Have you seen a uh, increase or decrease or would you know in, in hunting uh, popularity or licensing? Well, certainly, um, the number of licenses has has skyrocketed in the last three years. Um, so I don't have much of a basis of comparison before 2020 because that's when I came onto the department. I see. Um, but we have set a new record for the number of licenses being applied for, or the number of applicants rather, uh, for the licenses for big game. Every year, um, we break that record, uh, and we're talking. I think this last year we had 230,000 applicants for about 60,000 licenses across all the big game species. Wow. Um, and I think, you know, there's a couple of things that are contributing to that. You know, there's, there's um, certainly, you know, families like mine when we were growing up that uh, game meat was, a, was an affordable um, option to put meat on your table. You know, you got a family of five and... You know, we all know that inflation and, and things uh, outside of our control are, are making it expensive to, to go just to the supermarket and buy what you need to put in the freezer uh, and keep food on the table. And so I think there's probably been an uptick in, in folks in that avenue that, that want to be able to, you know, just provide for their families, fill their freezers. Mm. Um, but then I also think there is this, uh, there's this kind of awakening that, um, you know, game meat is is as natural and uh, antibiotic-free and hormone-free, you know, free-range um, meat. It's as, it's as natural as you can get, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's kind of this big promotion of, of ethically harvested animals, um, you know, whether it be in the industrial uh, food that we have in the country now, um, but a lot of people are just, they're recognizing the, the importance and the value of being able to close that food web themselves. Um, and I think, a, a, you know, a good, a good portion of the folks that are, are coming into hunting now are starting to recognize that. Yeah, um, I'd agree. You know, and it, it doesn't mean that it's not hard to pull, the, or that it is hard to pull the trigger. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to take the life of an animal. Um, but I think, you know, more and more people are, are recognizing that that once you get beyond that, you've you've had a really good outdoor experience. You know, you probably learned a lot about yourself, if not learned a lot about the animal that you're pursuing. And and you're able to to kind of close that gap. You know, you know where that food's coming from. You know, that animal had the best life it could have, albeit it's a hard life. You know, these animals aren't just running around and 
eating all the time and they're fat and happy and you know it's it's a difficult life to be a wild animal yeah but that animal didn't live in a you know in a feedlot it you know it didn't get any hormones throughout its life you know it's it's as organic as it gets and so i think uh you know i think there's been an uptick in in that part of the hunting community in the last few years yeah i i think so too um i I was gonna talk about this later but we're kind of we're kind of moving in that direction right now. Um, I wanted to kind of close with uh, like the foundation of, of uh, almost the, how would I say the characteristics of a hunter, like what, whether it's a woman or a man, you know, whoever's hunting kind of what the, um, what kind of ethics, uh, what kind of character uh, goes into, to being a, a hunter, like a, uh, um, an honest hunter, you know, somebody who's out there and doing what's right when no one's looking type of thing. Um, and again, I, we, we chatted about this off, off air, but I wanted to collect, kind of close with this, but Hey, we're, we're kind of moving in that direction. So it is what it is. But, um, the reason why I got into it was, was along those veins was first of all, I started, my eyes started to open about feedlots and about, you know, the, the life of an animal who's standing in, in one spot that's being fed to feed someone else. Uh, and, and by standing in, I've seen videos of uh, a cow standing in one spot that's just eating corn pretty much all day and getting antibiotics injected into it to get as big as possible, to get as fat as possible. So it doesn't move around because fat is tasty and that kind of thing. And um, to, so the, so the animal is harvested in a certain way to taste a certain way. And that's no life for the animal in my opinion, but you don't know that when you pick up the pack of meat at the grocery store, you just see a marbled ribeye, which is tasty to a lot of us. And you're like, wow, that's great. Let me just get that. It's on sale. And it's obviously on sale because it's being mass produced. Right. So, um, and when, if you don't know that background, uh, then you're, you're going to continue to do that probably for the rest of your life. Just get meat that way. And a, when a non-hunter, uh, uh, when you talk to a non-hunter who doesn't know anything about hunting, that that's kind of what I've heard anyway, is that, hey, why are you hunting? Because you can easily buy it here. And why are you killing an animal? But the part that they don't see is maybe that feedlot to where there's a, kind of been a media blackout of that. You can't even, you can't, film that you can't go to those feedlots they it's i feel like it's is it illegal i think it's illegal to to even fly a drone over those areas because they don't want that scene it's not a good scene whether that's for cattle or pork or whatever is whatever animal is being mass produced in those feedlots um i drove just really quick i we were talking about tule elk and the only um my exposure to tule elk was stopping in that preserve in northern uh, california i think it was um, and I drove by two humongous feedlots that are very close to the interstate. And I drove, no lie, man, I drove for like probably an hour w- with this stench that I couldn't even get out of my like nasal hairs. It was the nastiest stench that I've ever smelt or one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and all I could attribute to that was the mileage of, uh, I mean, miles and miles and miles of cows that are in these uh, enclosed areas. And 
it's feces, it's urine, it's whatever else, you know, like that mashup of nastiness yeah. that's that's involved in those feedlots. And um, I think if people knew how those animals were living versus a wild elk uh, and then a hunter harvesting the wild elk with his family and, you know, getting that meat out of the, the forest and, and putting it on the table and that kind of thing, if they contrasted those two views and then you fit, you, you figure in that blackout of not knowing and going to the, to the, to the grocery store and just seeing that package of meat there, um, I think that a lot of people would change their minds as far as uh, their outlook on, on hunters and hunting and, and actually killing an animal. Let's just say it, you know, killing it, shooting and killing an animal and gutting it and that kind of thing. I think there's a, uh, you know, when someone sees that versus the package of meat, sure. they're like, why do that? Because the package of meat is there. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You know, so it's just uh knowledge of it and that, and it's something I didn't know up until I you know like we talked about them late late onset so and then also the taste you know the, the taste is completely different too you know the the taste is the the high fat content is fat tastes good right so yeah. the, it, it's catered to your taste when you eat wild game it's a little like whoa this is different yeah it tends to be a lot leaner right i mean right. those animals they're they're living off of their reserves so they don't have a lot of fat Right, but so that means it's a healthier meat, uh-huh. and you know, and to me, I'd I'd rather eat an elk steak over over cattle any day. Yeah, just because I love the flavor. You know, it's yeah, it's not as marbled, but man, I I love me a medium rare elk steak. <laughs> yeah, I, the the flavor is surprisingly good. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, I've heard, I've tasted gamey quote gamey meat versus uh you know a, a, a ribeye from the grocery, and and they're like, well, there's really no comparison there it's like you're used to eating that nice ribeye and then you kind of have to kind of get used to this right. ga- the quote gamey meat but it's really how it, a couple of things how the, the animal was taken the care and then how you cooked it right yeah, so absolutely. there's a lot that goes into that if you're not taking the care from hilt to tilt then you're going to get yeah. what you get yeah you know but you know there's a lot of uh uh there's a lot that goes into that care, you know, and that, and again, that speaks to new hunters, which I wanted to chat with you about too, like how a new hunter, uh, their opportunities and how they can, uh, get into this. Um, because you said that you've seen that skyrocket of licensing and, and, um, or license people getting licensed to hunt. A lot of those people are new, right? So, uh, making sure that making sure that they're doing it the right way, uh, harvest when they're out in the in the in the forest by themselves they're doing the right thing um harvesting the animal the right way to get it to the table so it tastes well you know um, and taking real good care of it so multiple facets there i guess let's maybe kind of start with that new hunter kind of aspect of it and um uh your thoughts on that seeing that skyrocket in uh hunting licensing is there any concern over the the amount of new hunters that are now in the forest or in the mountains and whether it's safety or just their their experience getting the a good experience mm-hmm. um are there any resources for them um and could you maybe kind of speak to that a little bit yeah sure i mean luckily luckily the number of of actual licenses that are sold you know is regulated by us and it's determined by what's going on with the population. So no matter how many people are applying for the licenses, it's really only going to affect your chances of getting one. 
So there's not going to be like an over overwhelming amount of hunters in the forest because all these new hunters are coming onto the landscape. Right. Um, but you know, if you are just coming into, you know, big game hunting, um, whether it be, you know, you grew up, you know, you grew up around a hunting family and, and you're coming into it on your own or you're a late onset hunter. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of good resources out there and, and a big component of that is, is the hunting community. Um, I think some of the people that get into it, get into it for that reason. I mean, there's, there's a lot of camaraderie in the sportsman community. Um, you know, a lot of these people are just, they're so passionate about elk hunting specifically, um, you know, because it is, you know, it's an experience to get outside with or without your family or with your close friends, you know, even if maybe by yourself, you're just in nature you're out in the elements, you know, you're on, you're on that time scale of the natural landscape, right? You just get to leave it all behind much like you do when you're camping. I mean, that's why people get out into nature, right? It just kind of acts as this, this, uh, this pause moment, this breath of fresh air. Mm. Um, and so, you know, these people that are coming into the hunting community, I think, you know, my first, advice to them is, is to reach out to other hunters. You know, there's lots and lots of nonprofit, uh, and hunting organizations out there that have just tons and tons of material available to help people understand, you know, what, how to, how to, you know, stalk an animal, how to, you know, get close, how to read the landscape, how to understand the, um, the biology and the behavior of different animals and, and get better at, you know, just, being in the environment with the animal that you're hunting, um, you know, and also, you know, lots and lots of information about their, about equipment, you know, what's, what kind of rifle do you want to use or what kind of ammo or, you know, all the different components of that are involved with the actual harvest of the animal. And then, you know, there's lots and lots of instructional, uh, whether videos or pamphlets or information out there about how to dress an animal, how to field dress, you know, um, everything along that nature. And I can almost guarantee you, you know, fresh into the hunting scene or not, if you sit down with somebody that likes to elk hunt, you're not going to get them to shut up. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, like these guys, unless they, they talk, live for this. Unless they talk about, you want to ask them about where they hunt. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that, that's, that's that. top secret. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, these people, just like we're sitting here talking today, you know, like when I relive those moments, whether it be a hunt or an experience that I had just seeing a bull in, in the woods. I mean, like it just, it enlivens me. It gives me this, like, I don't know, this, this spirited, uh, emotion of just like kind of living in that moment. And, and, you know, a lot of these hunters, they live for that. You know, the, the benefit of, of either getting a, a European mount or a taxidermy mount on the wall and meat in the freezer. I mean, oftentimes that's, that's the added benefit. You know, sure. because on average, elk hunters in New Mexico are only harvesting about 35% of the time. So the other 65% of those hunters, they're still out there. They're still on the landscape and still having some of the best memories, you know, making some of the best memories of that year. They live for the hunting season. Yeah. And so if you're a new hunter, I, you know, my, my first recommendation is to try to find somebody that, that has hunted or is an avid hunter and just sit down and talk to them and say, hey, you know, I'm just coming into this. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. And don't feel like they're going to shame you for not knowing things. Because I think that a lot of the hunting community recognizes that 
for this, you know, this style of game management, the North American model for wildlife management. Uh, you know, it's dependent upon the sportsman. And so being able to recruit new hunters is, is important. It's important mm-hmm. for the agencies. Um, and it's, you know, us as the management agency, we rely upon that. So don't feel like, you know, you're going to be shamed because you're this new hunter coming onto the land and nobody's going to want to talk to you about it because, you know, that's their thing. And no, I think it's, I think it's really quite the opposite. People are going to be excited to talk to you and bring you into the circle, you know, and and if you meet the right people, they, they might be, you know, more than willing to say, Hey, you know, if you don't have a license this year, maybe come out with us and, you know, we'll teach you a little bit about how, how it all works. Um, so, and, and again, there's, Lots and lots of literature, lots of resources out there to learn about, you know, um, how to hunt, how to harvest, how to process, um, yeah. and just, and, and how to get into, into that sphere. Yeah, no, that's great stuff there. I, I, as you were talking, I was a couple of things I was thinking about. One is, man, I don't want any more hunters out there in a way, right? You want, you want kind of the mountains to yourself, right? Um, because you want to be able, you don't want the animals any more pressured than they are. You want to harvest a, a, a nice animal. You, you, um, with more people comes, I hate to say it, but sometimes more problems. Sure. Um, yeah, not everybody's ethical out there. Yeah. And so it, it, even though we want it to be popular and we want the funding and we want, we don't want problems when we, uh, go to get tags or people are saying that, Hey, we don't want you uh, harvesting uh, or there's uh, like any kind of predator prey issues where there's the predators are killing all that, you know, or, or not hunters. You, you want less challenges and with more people involved that love the sport of hunting or, uh, or just love, I don't know if this is, it is a sport. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Love the sportsman. Sportsman. Exactly. Love the sport of hunting. Um, then I feel like, the more people who love it and have more passion for it and are advocating for it more, the less problems you're going to get on, uh, uh, maybe like rules and regulations and that kinds of things. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I, and I agree. The, the folks that are going to step up and, and say, yes, welcome to this community. Those are the type of people that are going to teach you the ethical ways of harvest, you know, to not take a 700 yard shot, Right, you know, and and wound an animal that you might not be able to recover, you know. I feel like those that are going to welcome you into the community are more likely to teach you the ethics behind the sport itself, right? And that's really important. Yeah, it's it's of utmost importance, and it's the reason why I'm doing it. We chatted a little bit about um, uh, before uh, during the intermission about. Um, ethic, like ethics and the foundation of the, the character of a hunter and that kind of thing. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you real quick, I'll touch on it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing and why it's so important to me is because I went through that. I was out there um, by myself in the mountains. And what I, what really drew me to the hunting um, world it's not just that primal feeling that we talked about opening that door in a room, you know, and oh my gosh, all this stuff is here and your primal, um, your primal juices start flowing, right? And all your ancestors who hunted before you have now like, oh, there you are, you know, welcome, you know, type of thing. Um, but it's also this, um, this, the, there's a, there's a part of it that 
that speaks to you in a very like moral, very uh, that speaks to your character, what kind of person that you are. And if you're out there by yourself and there's, there's, you have to make decisions, right? And some people don't make good decisions. We talked about hunters who, you know, you want to, you want the, the right hunter to show you what yeah. to do because there's poachers out there. There's people who, who hunt out of season. There's people who are harvesting animals that they shouldn't. There's people who don't have tags that are pulling animals out of the, the mountains that shouldn't be doing that. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, they're out there, and that's why we have the the the, the law enforcement. And there's there's a there's there's room for or there's reasons why people are out there, uh, you know, patrolling the forest. And so, um, I I was confronted with that right uh, being late on set. There were there's been multiple times that I've been out there by myself that wanted to do something that was like. I'm looking around and no one's around. I could certainly harvest this animal. No one would know, you know, in there. I don't have a tag for the animal. And wow, this would be a trophy animal. I mean, I don't know how many people that's gone through their minds. But I'll just be honest with you, being a human being and being uh, a faulty person, an imperfect person, I I can't believe it has crossed my mind to do something bad out there. It like... Uh, man, and I have to be honest, like there's there's been moments where I've wanted to do something like I'm like, I, I could totally get away with this right now and everything would be OK. Um, and I've had to to reconcile with that. And that part of it right there is what it made me like addicted to it because it tells you who you are. Sure. Right. When no one's looking, that's when that's when you're really tested is that can you get away with it? Yeah, I could get away with harvesting this animal or bringing this animal out. No one would know, and I could tell my own story. But you have to live with that. Sure, you know you have to take that to your grave. Yeah. And so there was a <laughs> there was a um, I'll tell you this one quick story. This is the story that really stuck with me, and like just, it still lives in my heart. As I was I was on Lanai, and I was uh, I was in hunt I was hunting legally in a unit. But the sun had already gone down, and I was hunting all day hard, man. And I didn't, I saw animals, but I wasn't successful. Um, and I was coming down the mountain, sweat, sweaty, nasty, pissed off. And it was my last day, and I'm flying out the next morning. And I was staying with my auntie, and, um, and we had had a, a nice breakfast. Well, I had I'd hunted. I actually went back to the house. We had had like a mid morning breakfast, and we were talking. And she was like, she was like, you know, today's your last day. You better, you know, hunt hard. I was like, yeah. Well, I, you shouldn't be here right now. I should be out there. But um, so I get back. But you out. can't say no to Auntie's breakfast. Oh, you got to right. <laughs> and coffee with Auntie is always classic, right? So, so uh, I, I'm coming down, and and the the truck lights are on, right? So I'm coming down. And this buck comes out in front of the, the headlights. And I stop and I look at it. And I'm like, this this could happen right now. Yeah. I could put my rifle out there and I could put my, you know, put this thing in my scope. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna tell you what happened, right? I take my rifle, I open the door, I take my rifle out and I set it on the on the truck. And he's standing in my in 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 the headlights, yeah. deer in the headlights, yeah. right? And he's looking at me. And he's not moving, just just staring at the headlights. Open opportunity. Open opportunity. I I'm embarrassed to tell you that I put this deer in my scope, right? And, um, but I'm being honest. 
this is what happened. I'm a new hunter, right? So I put this deer in my scope and I'm getting ready seriously to pull the trigger and he bounds off. And then this feeling inside of me, like I wanted to scrub my insides out. Yeah. Like I felt like a dirty person. I went down there and I was embarrassed to tell my auntie what happened. Yeah. And I didn't tell her at first. I went down there and I was, she was like, what happened? I was like, nothing and this and that. And then it's like, I got to talk to you. And she's, so we sat down and we talked. And what she told, I told her exactly what happened. And what she told me surprised me. She said, uh, you know, I told her that I was going to pull the trigger, auntie. I was like, uh, inside of me, I was like, I, I was actually going to do it. You know, I was going to shoot this deer in the headlights on the freaking road. <laughs> and and I'm embarrassed to say it out loud, man. I am. But it 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 made me who I am now. Yeah. You know, I'm glad I'm actually glad that it happened, well, yeah. believe it or not. And so I get down there and, you know, I tell her the whole story. And I said, I said, I'm embarrassed to tell you I was going to I was going to shoot that buck in, in the headlights. And then she said <laughs> what she said freaked me out, man. She said, I would have shot that buck. And I said, I threw me back. Huh. And I said, she goes, deer invasive on this island. I would have shot that buck and anything was in the headlights with it. You know, and, and so it turned into a joke. Like she, it, it made it like this lighthearted, like, oh yeah. But I was still, I still felt heavy. You know, I yeah. still was, I was still pissed off at myself and everything like that. And I never dug into it, like why she said that. I feel like she said it just to make me feel better because she knew how dirty I felt and how like how how I conflicted yeah how I set the time aside to actually talk to her about it like we had dinner and I wasn't we were watching and we whenever I'm there she always has to watch the news late at night and it just drives me nuts but I sit there with her then afterwards we're going to bed and that's when I say hey I want to talk to you and so we we sat and we talked and that's when she told me that freaked me out when she said it. But when I was I was laying down, I was like, "Did she say that just to make me feel better?" Hmm. Maybe she did, and I never talked to her again about it. You know, we never discussed it again. But she's a type of she's an upstanding woman, and I feel like she did that to make me just it like lightheartedly make me feel better. But that moment right there made me a better person, and that's the reason why I'm still in the mountains yeah. because. I want that feeling to happen again, and I want to do the right thing sure, again, and I sure. want to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And again, embarrassed to tell you that that was me that actually was going to do that, but I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of people out there that m might have done that too, you know, sure. if no one was looking and they were the only person in the unit, because these are on lanai these are units that you you basically purchase for the day and you're that you're the only person yeah you it. have it to yourself yeah if there was other hunters in there I, you know again embarrassed to say that maybe i wouldn't have even thought about it but yeah. I, it, knowing that i was by myself and knowing that my character was flawed in that way made me want to get right back out in those mountains and do the right absolutely thing, you know do you ever do you ever think about you know if you had pulled that trigger and if you know if you'd gotten that buck mounted yeah. Do you think that, you know, telling the story to others or even just knowing the feeling in your in your own mind and your in, in your own heart, like would you have been able to look at that that mount and like feel proud? Or do you think that it would have been this kind of like this trophy of shame that A trophy of shame. Yeah. I didn't even take it that far. I didn't even think to think of like if I'd have what was gonna happen what, after. What was gonna happen after. Yeah. 
And that's a good question. I didn't, right. I didn't think to think of like putting myself through the paces of, okay, now the buck's dead. And now like, I'm going to, you know, harv- I'm going to, you know, cut this animal open. I'm going to eat this animal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mount this animal. And I didn't even take it that far. And I would have been ash- completely ashamed. Of course, I don't know that I would have even mounted that per- that yeah. buck. I feel like it would have been. It was a. It's a. It was a wasted life in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, how, it certainly doesn't fall into like the fair chase category. Definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. And you know, I'll say it for the fifth time. It's an embarrassing story to tell. I've never actually told it. You know, other than to her. Yeah. And um, but I feel like knowing other uh, knowing other people like other hunters that i've talked to and listening to what they've said that they've done out in the open you know hunting at night using thermal scopes yeah. and all kinds of crazy stuff i i feel like there's hey, hey man a lot of more people out there that would do crazy stuff like that and um I don't know, man. I just reinforced the fact, me personally, like who I wanted to be as a person, yeah, and the character that I wanted to have, and I wanted to pass on to my kids, and to have like, and and asso- associating yourself with a certain kind of people, you know, you right. could cert- I certainly could have taken that buck and associated myself with those kinds of people, but how do you feel, you know? Certain people would have shot the buck and not felt like they wanted to scrub out their insides, right? right. But I knew right away, right when I, he bounded off, uh, I, I, I shrunk into myself. I like, I just recoiled, and I was like, "Oh God, who am I? Like, what the hell are you thinking?" Yeah, you know. And man, it was a, it was a bittersweet moment. I could tell you now, it's a sweet moment. Like, if I feel great about it now. Yeah. But at the moment, it was the worst. I feel like I've felt it. I don't say the worst I've ever felt, but sure. it was up there. Yeah, it was up there. Well, you tell you tell me that this is a story that you don't tell that often, um, but in reality, I think it's one that you should tell more because you know you made the right decision. You decided to be you know a character of of integrity, right? Like you you made the right choice, even though nobody was watching. And Actually, I th- I, well, I wasn't gonna though. Well, but you, in, yeah, I suppose you weren't you weren't going to, but yeah. you you know in the end, looking back at it. You know, you recognized that, you know, and it taught you about integrity. It taught you about, okay, if this were to happen again, would I put myself in that same situation? Yeah. And it sounds like you, you know, you learned a lot about integrity and, and, you know, something about yourself that you might not have learned otherwise. So to me, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like an important story to you. And, and it's one that, you know, maybe you should think about telling more often. Yeah, well... I mean, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. I don't, you're not the only person out there to have come across that, you know, that decision. And, you know, maybe, maybe if it stood there long enough, you would have taken the shot and, and you still would have learned a valuable lesson, right? Yeah. You, you may have learned something about yourself, about your integrity that maybe I would do this again because I got away with it. Or maybe, yeah, you, you got this internal feeling of, man, I just, I really feel like, a dirty human being and and that wasn't right and that wasn't fair chase and you know i think you still would have learned something about it and uh you know not knowing much about your character uh you know i would hope that you would learn to to err on the side of integrity sure and, and that's and that's something that you know we as an agency we we give that 
that kind of choice and, and freedom to a lot of our hunters, you know, like we don't have uh, law enforcement agents behind every tree, you know, they're not out there watching every single hunter and every single access road. And so there's a lot of trust put into the sportsman community mm. and, and with the assumption that, you know, the majority of them are going to make that right choice. Yeah, that they're not going to take you know a six hundred yard shot. They're not going to shoot after after daylight hours. You know that there's certainly going to be those people out there that that make those decisions, and whether or not they feel bad about it, that's on them. Um, but hopefully, hopefully the young or the up and coming hunting community is is recognizing the importance of of doing the right thing. You know having the integrity of doing the right thing, even though nobody's watching. Because, you know, there's there's going to be another chance. You know, it may be the last day of your hunt and you may not draw another license for another four years, but you still had that experience of getting out there and, and having that hunt. And hopefully, regardless of whether or not you feel that freezer, it's still going to have an impact on who you are and, and your decision-making. And, you know, it, it becomes a part of you. And yeah, I think that's what I think that's what a, a good majority of hunters want out of that experience, and maybe that's just naivety on my part, uh, thinking and giving people the benefit of the doubt uh, to think that they're going to do the right thing and and make these decisions out of integrity, because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't always happen. But the hope is, you know, that we're trusting these individuals to make those those choices, to follow the rules, and and give fair chase. Um, and you know, and have a great experience of it, regardless of the outcome. Yeah, no, absolutely. That um, I don't think I think you're right in the fact that. Uh, well, I I feel anyway that the majority of the people out there are good people. I I didn't mean by when I said that there's a lot of people out there that would have shot the buck and that I think they are, but I think there's a a vast majority, you know, hopefully high ninetieth percentile anyway. Yeah, that would have done the right thing and not even thought about that. Sure. doing that but i the reason why i i feel like i go back up in the mountains it's not just for the primal you know that that room that opened up for me and the the love that i have for it and the passion that i have for it but it that there's a component of that character that in me like that i want to reinforce that character because you're going to i'm going to have i'm going to cross that road again i'm going to sure. and i'm going to cross a similar road it might not be that road but it might be something similar where I'm hunting hard all day and a a 380 bull steps out at some point that maybe it's not pitch black at night, but it might be like right after uh, shooting light or it might be, uh, might be a little too far for me. Like, you know, like it comes out at shooting light and it's 500 yards. I'm not comfortable with that. You know, am I going to injure that bull? Am I going to take the chance? You know, is my rifle rifle really sighted in to where, like, you know, uh, you know, here's another example. You're going up, let's say you're going up to, to sight in your rifle and you're somehow in the unit or whatever and a bull steps out, but you're not sighted in yet. What do you do? Do you, yeah. sh- do you shoot? Do you take or, that chance? Do you take that chance to shoot and injure the animal? Or, or do you know, wait till your rifle gets sighted? See, there's all these little, I mean, it's the possibilities are probably endless to test your character out there. And I feel like, man, there's that component is like a humongous component for me too, just reinforcing what type of person you are when you're out there. Sure. Whether you're alone or you're with your buddies who maybe might not, might be a little questionable in their morals or their judgment too that could weigh on you just because you're together. 
make you, you know, you're more apt to make a crappy decision if you're out there hanging out with, with buddies that are, you know, somebody yeah. who might do something crazy. And I want to ask you specifically about that too. Not so much the, the hunter aspect of it, cause we've established that we're hunters, you know, but the character part of that and, um, wanting to know like for you personally to speak to that and uh, maybe s- your experience in whether it's growing up or who you are now and, and, and what kind of person you are now, because I've seen the majority of people that I've run into that are hunters versus non hunters or people who, who are against hunting. There's a character of a, of, of a man or woman who, who is out in the wilderness and I don't know how I can put my finger on it, but I feel like there's a backbone there. Mm. There's a there's a culture there that is just unmistakable. Like it's sure. you know what I mean. <clears throat> I wonder if you could could maybe speak to that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. There there certainly is like a character type of of the hunter, um, and and it's I in my experience that that character type has has widened quite a bit. Um, it's not quite this like typecast, uh, you know, beer drinking, gunslinging, uh, truck driving, you know, um, camel wearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not all kind of fitting into that one category. I think a lot of a lot of new hunters from all walks of life are are starting to learn and explore the outdoors and the realm. Um, but for me, I think probably the the characteristics that stand out the most in in what you're calling that kind of that backbone characteristic um, is, is a sense of adventure and like the willingness to learn, right? Because even when I just go out camping, you know, for a few days, if you, if you spend three days on the landscape, whether it's, you know, at one campsite and you're just hiking from there, or if you're in your truck and you're driving around at about the three day mark, you really, your circadian rhythm really starts to sync well with the landscape around you. You, you've kind of created a baseline, Mm. right? Where you kind of become part of that landscape. The animals might not see it that way, but you, you know, you really start to kind of notice things that you wouldn't notice otherwise, you know, you're leaving your schedule and all your worries behind, you know, those things are back at home and civilization. You're out here experiencing the world as it, as it were before mankind, you know, created cities and roadways and highways and you know you're getting back to the the rhythm of nature um and certainly you know having the spirit of adventure definitely helps because you know it it can be kind of a little bit um a little bit nerve-wracking you know especially if you're not comfortable being in the woods or putting yourself into situations where you may get stuck or you know you find yourself unfamiliar with where you are and you can't find your way back home or anything along those lines. There's lots of things that can happen in the woods. Yeah. Um, but then this, this kind of like inherent, uh, ability to learn and this want to learn. Cause I, I can't tell you how many countless days I've spent in the woods, in the wilderness for field work, camping, hunting, recreation. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how much I learn about, either this new landscape that I, I'm going to or about something in myself that I hadn't recognized. And some of that is because what's going on in my life changes and, you know, being out in that open space helps me to reflect upon what's happening in my own life. Um, but certainly, you know, those two characteristics 
that sense of adventure and the willingness to learn are, are the two things that I see the most in the hunting community and those that are out there, you know, being sportsmen on the, on the landscape. Mm. Um, and, you know, and my hope is that those that are kind of recruiting this new generation of sportsmen are, are kind of facilitating um, that understanding of, you know, this is a, this is a place to learn and this is a place to, you know, get back in touch with uh, some things that you may not think are important when you're home, but out here they're, they're vitally important. Um, And so, yeah, I guess, you know, I, it, it never ceases to surprise me the types of people I run into when I'm either hunting or out there on the landscape. And there are hunters out there Um, that, that, that threshold and that spectrum is, is certainly widening. And I, I think, you know, um, I think, you know, we are, we should be welcoming of that. Anybody that wants to get into and experience, you know, new things and, and hunting and or fishing is, is on that list of things that you want to experience. I think it's definitely worth exploring. Um, there's, there's, to me, there's no better way of getting back in touch with nature than pursuing an animal and, you know, if you're lucky enough to pull that trigger and harvest and, and take some of that home, um, there's no better opportunity to get back in touch with that natural rhythm of what's happening in the world around you. And whether or not you learn something about hunting or you learn something about yourself, it can be a really, like, transformative experience. Yeah. And that, and that doesn't have to happen every year, and it won't, ha- it won't happen every year. But I think if you open yourself up to the opportunity of it happening, it certainly can happen every year. Yeah, no, most definitely. Man, I agree with every word you just said. That's great. Um, is there, a, is, you, said, you mentioned that uh, sometimes you learn stuff about yourself when you're out there and you're surprised by that. Is there a specific um, example or examples that you, you were out there and you were like, whatever was going on out there, whatever you were going through in your head or whatever happened or whatever experience it was that you were able to apply to your life to make you a better person? Yeah, sure. I think for me, in my day-to-day life, I tend to be kind of a busybody. I'm I'm constantly moving. I'm constantly thinking about the next step. I'm constantly thinking about when this is done, what I'm moving on to the next thing. And that's constantly occupying my mind. And, uh, you know, if it's the weekend, my fiance gives me crap about this all the time. She likes to have a nice, easy transition into the morning. We sleep in, we have coffee together, you know, on the back porch and just kind of ease into the day. Whereas I'm like, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? How are we getting, how are we going to get there? (laughs) Are we bringing the dogs? You know, like I'm, I'm already 15 minutes after waking, I got that cup of coffee in me and I'm like, okay, let's go because I'm just this ball of energy that just wants to be constantly doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, for me, getting out and, and hunting, no matter what it is that you're hunting, um, for me, it taught me a lot about patience mm. and just about like being present in the moment and, and my location and where I am, not just geographically, but in my life. Um, you know, it's, it's an excellent time for reflection if, and it gives you that opportunity to slow down and teach you patience and teach you, 
that you don't necessarily have to be thinking about the next move. You know, maybe maybe it's best to just step back and breathe and let that thing come to you, mm. which everybody tells me that's what archery hunting is all about, which I have yet to dive into that realm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's best to to just take a step back and, and you know, instead of being a human doing, just be a human being. Right. I like that, man. That's a good, that's a good line. Did you, <laughs> I don't know. I caught that somewhere along the line. It's not my own. <laughs> I was like, man, did you script that? Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Being a human being. Yeah. Not a human doing. I like that. And being present in the moment. I had a friend tell me one time, um, she was going through a real bad breakup and, uh, or she had already kind of gone through it and she was, had recovered and she, it was tough, man. It was like, it was a, like a couple years in, I said, what did you learn from my experience? I remember, like, uh, you were, you, you're completely different now. You're so vibrant, and you, had, you, you were depressed, you know. And she said, you know what I learned more than anything else is that uh, life is about life is about the journey, not getting there. And even though it was a tough journey, that that the slog of depression of and you know going through all those, I didn't, I, I, I what I learned is. I lost time in not learning from the experience, if that makes sense. I was depressed, and that's a, that's, that's a normal emotion when you're going through something bad. But at some point, she woke up and said, okay, even though I'm depressed, I'm on a journey, and I don't want to lose the six months or year or two years that it takes to get over this. I need to be, I need to be present. And I need to learn and I need to like appreciate the moments, even though they're not 100% happy like I would normally be. Maybe it's 50% happy, but appreciate that 50% happiness. Appreciate where I am. Appreciate the person that I'm actually talking to and not be, you know, 100% out of it because I'm depressed. Yeah. And so that really stuck with me. I was like, wow, that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength. You know, it, it takes a lot of just just internal fortitude to kind of wake yourself up to the moment, so to speak. And that's kind of a little bit of what you're talking about too. Like you're constantly on her, her, her outlook was, I can't wait till I get over this. Mm -hmm. You know, your outlook is I can't wait till this is done. So we know what the next step is, but you're not in the moment. You're not living in the moment. And that her experience is a little different, but it's kind of the same. Be in the moment, be in the being, learn, learn where you are. You know, even though nothing has happened in an hour and you're sitting here looking at this landscape in your glass and you haven't seen a damn thing, still be there. Don't think about, you know, I mean, yeah, we're, we're human beings. We're going to think about what's, sure. for, what's for dinner. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? But try to be there and try to work through it and try to have the courage and the, and the strength to be there and, and, and learn something from that moment. Absolutely. You know, you know what I mean? Another part of that is like almost like a, a like a student, right? You're going for your PhD or you're going for your bachelor's or whatever it is, or you have this goal of getting that certificate. And through it all, you're studying your ass off and you're miserable and you're like, you got no time to yourself. You don't want to lose that time. Let's say it's four years. You're going to lose all that time, you know, being upset that you're studying. Yeah. Try to have the 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 the, the mental capacity to appreciate the, the moment that you're in and to learn and live a good life through that time. Cause you, you don't want to just forget that time. That's, right. that's when that's the character part of it. That's what makes you who you are, you know? Yeah. That absolutely. makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
It's better to try to learn along the way and and kind of take it for what it is while you're there rather than look back on it and say, man, I really wish that I was a little bit more present through that process. Yeah. Because it goes, you know, just as like many things in life, it goes by faster than you expect it to. Yeah. And, and the, you know, another great thing about hunting is it kind of forces you to, to stop and take those pauses that, you know, you might not necessarily do if you're out on a hike with friends or just out in the woods, you know, because for me, I'm not taking much for breaks. You know, I might stop in the shade for the dog, but I'm, I got a mission. I'm going to the top of that mountain and that's my goal. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm moving until I get there and then I'm moving on the way back. It doesn't, it doesn't really give much time for that kind of pause and just force yourself into this kind of stasis of just, of just being on the landscape and just observing. And, yeah. and in our busy daily lives, you know, I mean, we have access to everything in our fingertips all the time, every day. And, you know, our, our brains and, and our thought processes are just constantly jumping from one thing to the next. And, and that's, that's our daily life where you don't really have much opportunity to just step away from that and, and pause and just breathe and just watch and observe and, and it, it's hard. I mean, yeah. it's just like a meditative practice. You know, when you start into that, it's hard to just sit still and just kind of calm your mind and focus on your breathing. And it just the same as when you're out on, on the landscape hunting. Like, you're always wondering, okay, well, maybe they're over that next ridge. Maybe I should rush over there. Or, you know, maybe they're just down in this draw by this water hole. But, you know, sometimes it's best to just sit and observe yeah. and and wait for something to happen and and getting that that time to just pause in your life i mean there's not a lot of things in this world that give you that opportunity and hunting is a great a great time to do that it is it is and while you were talking i was thinking about this there's a um i've noticed that uh, when i'm in in the mountains uh quite a bit i have <sighs> you have your phone with you and so if you have service and <clears throat> You're glassing around and you know nothing's happening. What you gonna do? Sure, you gonna pull out your phone, check to see if you got a text message or any of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got service. Let me scroll. Yeah. you know whatever it is. And man, part of me hates that. Part of me hates that there's phones out there. You know, sure. yeah. I'm, I'm even with like a buddy of mine, and I look over and I mean he's he or she might be spending like 30, 40 percent of the time on their phone, just kind of looking and then looking around and looking, look, you know. Right. And it's like, are we really here? And right. I'm sure at some point, I can't point fingers because I'm sure some points you look at me and I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, okay, let me look at this. Sure. Me, you know, I'm, I'm, this is boring. Let me, you know. Yeah. I feel like the, the phones have really, um, you know, they've screwed with our attention span. Oh, absolutely. You know. So, um, do you remember when we had to like remember our friends' phone numbers and that kind of stuff? Yeah, dude. I, there's, <laughs> I don't. I, I can't call my mom right now. <laughs> exactly. There's no way. There's no way I'd be lost. I can't get back to Farmington without my phone. Exactly. Right now. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, so it's really been a. Um, it's uh, hunting has not just helped us in me. You know, it sounds like you too be better as a person outside of the forest and outside of the mountains, but it's also um, helped us to be. Um, uh, just able to, to to be able to to live a better quality life, whether we're there or here. You know, um, uh, it's like you said, it's, it's our opportunity to disconnect. We can pull out the phone if we want to, if we're out there, or we can leave it in our backpack. You know, we we have Onyx and all those kinds of things to get us to and from. So I get that now, and 
kind of that's our compass, our our uh, high tech compass now, um, in a lot of ways, and uh, people are using it a lot for e scouting and that kind of thing. So it is what it is. We're moving, not just moving in that that direction. We're there, yeah. You know, but I hope my hope is is that we don't lose uh, that part of it, and I think we're the we're already taking that step and the fact that we're up in the mountains anyway is a, is a good first step to knowing where we like, uh, being cognizant of what we need in our lives. Right. And what we don't need, yeah. you know? So, uh, I think that's real healthy. Um, man, is there, is there anything else that you would like the public to know, uh, about not just, I mean, of course about what you do, cause your job is, is incredibly important. And I'm still so thankful that you're able to sit with me today and take the time. But is there anything else that you'd want the public to know about either your what you do or what the, the uh, your agency does, and um, um, what you'd want to see more out of the public, if that makes sense? Yeah, man, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think I think for the most part. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of respect from the public, a lot of understanding. Um, but I think, man, one of the things that would be great, uh, is just, you know, when you see a game warden or you see somebody in a game and fish truck out there in the field, um, and, and you guys, and you got a little bit of time, just, you know, go, go chat them up a little bit, see what they're up to, see what, see what their life is, is like, what they're doing out there. Uh, you know, and just maybe get a little better understanding about what they're doing out there. Um, cause a lot, a lot of times, you know, game wardens or biologists, anybody that's out there in a game and fish vehicle, um, you know, they're inherently invested in the wildlife and the natural processes that are occurring and they, they're passionate about what they're doing, um, you know, often a lot of our game wardens, these guys, you know, they're lifelong hunters. They're passionate about, about hunting, but they're also passionate about conservation efforts. They're passionate about what's happening in the state. Um, you know, they have great working relationships with these, you know, private ranch owners and things along that. You know, I lean on, on game wardens as, as often as I can. You know, these guys, they're boots on the ground every day. They know the ins and outs of every one of those roads, every one of those creeks and drainages, uh, you know, they know that landscape more so than I ever will. I'm looking at things from the 10,000, 50,000 foot level. You know, I'm looking at the whole state. There's no way I could know everything there is to know about every part of the state. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I think sometimes game wardens get a bad rap because they're just, you know, they're the law enforcement aspect of what we do. They're just thought of as these wildlife police. Um, but in reality, you know, these guys are passionate about hunting. They're just out there to make sure that people are making those, those good choices and they have integrity in what they're doing in the woods. Um, and I, I guess I would just ask those people to reach out, you know, recognize the game wardens and biologists and all these people out there in these department vehicles you know, we're all just passionate about wildlife and we're all passionate about, you know, what's happening with our wildlife on the land. And you'll be surprised, you know, go up and shake hands and, and ask them what they're doing. If they've got the time, they'll sit and chat with you. And, and just like sitting down and chatting with you today, man, you might learn something. Yeah. And whether it be about 
you know, what they're doing out there or their lives, why they're in the field and what they do. Um, I think, you know, just a little bit, a little bit more exposure, uh, for, for the personnel with our game and fish agency is, would go a long way. So in that regard, I want to thank you for inviting me onto the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you, man. I, I thank you. And hey, I appreciate you thanking me. It's a good, that's a, that's a, I think that's a good place to, to at least press pause for now. And if we, um, uh, you know, want to do this again. And cause I had so many other questions about just elk in general. I think we went over a lot of stuff, but you're, you're I love elk so much. I could probably talk like hours about elk and listen to you talk about elk. And, and I'm sure there's a ton of people out there that would love to know, um, what you know about elk too, especially in the state, cause it's a, a really popular state, um, for, for elk hunting, especially, uh, you know, hunting, uh, trophy animals. I know that for sure. And uh, um, I also feel like we New Mexico. When you look up like articles, you're kind of on the lower rungs, though. Like you know, they'll mention like Montana, and they'll mention you know Wyoming and some of these other states. And uh, why it, in some places I feel uh, some circles New Mexico might be overlooked. But man, this it's not a state to be overlooked. I mean, I've just from being here and and seeing what's out there and speaking with certain people, it's, it's definitely not a state to be overlooked for anything. It's a, it's a beautiful state, um, driving through, especially like, you know, um, uh, like Albuquerque, it, it looks like the, it's just like desert everywhere, but man, I've been up in, uh, like, like, uh, for example, I got a tag in five B went up in five B it's like, man, there's, it's, there's forests out there. It's beautiful in this state in yeah, some it's areas. Very diverse. Yeah. Very diverse. That's a good way to put it. But yeah, I, I certainly thank you for today and um, I'd like to do this again and, uh, you know, get some more questions together about some, something else, a different topic and, and chat more about stuff. And um, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for your time today, Travis. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Hopefully we'll do it again. Looking forward to it. Okay.